Welcome back, everybody, into Bill's Chat, a pro football podcast. This is Josh. With me tonight, as always, is Luca. Luca, how are you doing on this fine evening? I'm doing good. It was a long weekend in New Orleans and everything. You might hear it in my voice a little bit over the recording here, but uh, I'm doing good. I'm glad to I'm glad to be back in the routine, we'll call it. You're racking up some frequent flyer miles here these last few weeks. What were you doing down in New Orleans? Down there to uh, do a little celebrating of uh, Bud's uh, bachelor party. He's getting married in three weeks time, I believe it is now. And uh, he wanted to go down there and experience what it is that is New Orleans and Bourbon Street and all that. Um, It was a fun time. I talked to you a little bit off air how I really felt about it. I don't have to get into great length about (laughs) New Orleans or anything, but uh, I don't think I'll ever be returning. But again, I did have a good time. It was, it's definitely, there's a lot going on there. You know, it's, it's, it's a fun time. I definitely would recommend it maybe for you one time, but it, it, you don't have to, if you don't want to. Yeah. It's to me, it's the way I've always heard new Orleans described is it's always kind of been described as to me as that place. Like maybe I should have done it when I was in my twenties. And now that I'm in my late thirties with a kid, it it doesn't necessarily appeal. Although I may find myself going down there for a Bills game at some point. Maybe they'll have a Super Bowl in New Orleans and the Bills will be playing. Speaking of the Bills, I hear there was a Bill in your uh, travel party, maybe unintentionally. Want to talk about that? Yeah, no. uh, On our flight from Buffalo to Charlotte, you know, going out, uh, we had a layover there. Uh, We sit down in our row and just one row up across the aisle. You just see, I mean, I saw the logo. Apparently, no one else in my party that was traveling with me recognized his actual uh, emblem or whatever you want to call it, his logo. But on his hoodie, you could see the uh, S with a snake, I believe it is, and an L. And it was like, immediately I knew. It's like, hey, that's Shaq Lawson. Like, no joke. And you could tell by his attitude. Real fun time. Even the woman sitting on the aisle. He was in the middle seat, too. Oh, wow. Like, this guy wasn't on a window, wasn't first class. No, 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 no. He's row 18 of an American Airlines coach flight in the middle row or in the middle seat. Like he was in the people and this woman looked over even and just like looked at us. Cause he, she could see us giggling every time he'd make a comment. And she just like did like the silent, like he's a bill. And it's like, we know <laughs> we're very well aware of who that is sitting there. And, and we had even a funny little thing when we're at the gate. Um, you know, we didn't take off in time. They were running into some sort of issue. I can't remember off the top of my head. And we're sitting there and it was like a, basically an hour delay at the gate. And, um, he like, he's like, man, they better be bringing us some snacks and drinks or something right now. I'm, I, I need something here. And he, you know, he's just going off about that, just making light of the situation too. And it was, it was a fun time. It was funny, but, uh, yeah. And then, you know, I, I wrote down the notes here cause I didn't even tell you this cause I know I posted that part in discord, but when we're getting off there you know, it, it's always fun. People are do whatever they do and you just want to get off by that point. You've been sitting on the plane for as long as it is. And then it's taking forever to get off. He scoots on out real quick. And all of a sudden he gets to the front of the plane as right as me and my friends are getting out. And he's like, Hey, yo, yo, I left my wallet back there. Could someone look, I don't have my wallet. And I immediately, like, I knew exactly where he was sitting. Of course, and I just reach in there and I look into the like he put his wallet. He was a classic travel. You know, I don't want to call out, call him out, but you don't do this. He put his wallet in that little slot on the back of the seat and left it there. And of course, he forgot it. So, you know, reach in there and grab it. And I'm like, it's still here. And I squish it. By the way, that wallet was very squishy. There's a lot going on in there. I didn't <laughs> open it up or anything. But, you know, get it up there. And he, you know, daps us up. He says, thanks so much, man. Lifesaver, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, uh, me and the boys kept joking around that I personally saved Shaq Lawson's money and wallet. 
So he better go on and maybe make the team and have a good year. And then I can look back at that as the turning point of the you know season. But, uh, and another funny thing real quick before he, that all happens, we're all walking off. He sees us all together. He goes, he asked my one friend, oh, you guys from Charlotte too. After he told him go bills. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> no Shaq, no. definitely not from Charlotte there. That's going to be one of those stories that as the years go by, it's going to get more and more impressive what you did. Like by two years from now, it's going to be like, I had to dive through two people to get his wallet. 10 years <laughs> from now, it's going to be like, I went back on a burning plane and grabbed his wallet for him. So yeah, that's, that's neat. That's cool. I mean, anytime you can just see some of these guys outside of, you know, the television screen or the football field, it's, it's different. And just thinking about a six foot three, 260 pound NFL defensive lineman sitting in the middle seat on a plane has me chuckling. Um, one last thing about your trip to new Orleans, we were talking off the air. You had a very relatable experience that a lot of us deal with when we wear bills, colors in other cities. You got a little flack for wearing some Bills colors. We don't have to go into the whole story, but there is some, there's a learning lesson here for Bills fans that get flack for being Bills fans. You want to talk a little bit about what happened to you when you walked into a bar with some Bills colors on? Yeah, didn't even walk in. I was just going to the front door to check how the boys were doing, picking up some drinks. And uh, yeah, also, I didn't even mention this. This is the first time of the entire weekend I am wearing anything Bills related. Like <laughs> I actually found this funny hat you know, it was, it was a really nice, like trucker farmer hat, uh, at a local hat place. It was like 40 bucks. And it said, like, I had a picture of a rooster on it. It just said cock. I was like, that's a perfect hat. For the weekend. <laughs> so that's actually what I was wearing all weekend up until this point. Then I had a bunch of blue on. So I was like, oh, I'll throw on the bills hat tonight. And, uh, so I walk in or I go to walk in just to check in the guys from the front door and a guy just, you know, big 300 pounds, six foot three bouncer, kind of like nonchalantly just goes, you know, bills ain't going nowhere. And, uh, I don't think he expected me to clap back. I know I mentioned that to you, but I immediately stopped, backed up a couple steps. And I, I, I was like, who, who are you a fan of? And he, you know, he was a Broncos fan from new Orleans though. The guy that was uh, left was also a saints fan. And there was, there was a bit of, a bit of jibber jabber. There was a, a couple back and forth that happened. And, uh, I also learned a t- valuable lesson. Like I said, like you said, I should say, I don't want to go too far into it. But um, I came away from it two things. One, don't ever say ain'ts to Saints fans. They told me they weren't happy about it, and I would end up in an alley somewhere if I keep saying that loosely around. Uh, and two, uh, they think we're all dicks, and they, we have a very bad rap in New Orleans, probably from uh, Thanksgiving and everyone out there last year. Who knows what happened, whether it's right or wrong. I, I don't know. But um, yeah, they, they did not. They were not a fan of anyone wearing Bill's gear out there. And um, it, it just got me thinking. I was like, man, we better fucking win. To <laughs> we better fucking win the, either this year or very, very soon. Or else it's just it's going to get more and more tough to clap back at these kinds of people. Because, you know, I even told them, I was like, you guys have the Trump card. You guys have a Super Bowl. Both the Saints and Broncos have Super Bowls. I can't say anything there. But other than that, it's like, hey, respect a fan to fan. Like we got Josh Allen, of course, I'm feeling okay about things right now. And, you know, as we all should as Bills fans, but, uh, yeah, it was, uh, it was, um, an interesting conversation and experience. Don't have to get in too much detail here, but, uh, I definitely learned that we don't have a good rap in new Orleans and definitely, definitely, if you're trying to like dig at them a little bit, do not drop an ain'ts line on them. That does not go a long way. That's a line you do not want to cross. Apparently 
And what I found interesting, and I'll just tell this part of the story for you, is they somewhat accused you of being a front runner. Like, hey, we never saw any Bills fans around before they were good. And isn't that interesting? Because you know, yeah. if you're listening to Bills Chat Football Podcast, you probably were a Bills fan before Josh Allen became quarterback, before it became the cool team to root for. And like you told them, hey, I had a Willis McGahee jersey. I had a Bledsoe jersey. I had a Flutie jersey. And you almost find yourself in a position where you have to defend your fandom and I get the same way. Like I, I, I tend to clap at Chiefs fans who give me a hard time over, hey, the Bills lost to the Chiefs in the playoffs. And it's like, God damn it. I watched, I've watched every Bills game since 1998, every quarter of every game. I've lived through uh, Trent Edwards and J.P. Lossman. Um, Jake Fromm was a thing at one point in time. Brian Brom was a thing. And you're a Chiefs fan now. Why? Because they're the team that's four hours away and they have a cool quarterback and a cool tight end. Can you even name 10 players on their roster? So I get the same way. So I understand where they're coming from. Uh, but Luca, what I find interesting is I'm trying to figure out what could have happened on Thanksgiving to give them such a sour taste about Bills fans. So I was looking back at it and the Saints season was actually quite the roller coaster ride. They started off five and two. And they even pounded the Bucks at one point in time. And then Winston got hurt and Simeon came in and they lost five games in a row and they were five and five going into Thanksgiving. So if you think about that game, five and five going into Thanksgiving, if you re- remember, um, Winston obviously wasn't playing. Uh, Kamara was hurt. Half their offensive line was hurt. They're missing some defensive stars. And that was a game that really felt like they had to win that to save their season. Obviously, it didn't go their way. And if you just think about it from like a logistical standpoint, national TV night game on Thanksgiving, there's probably a lot of Saints fans that saved up for that game. You know, Josh Allen coming to town. That was like their, we're going to go see the Saints play the Bills on Thanksgiving night game. And it was just the Bills came and just crashed the party. And I'm sure Bills fans had a good time that were in town that night. And that can that can rub you the wrong way for sure. We've been on the other end of those beatdowns as Bills fans over the years. So that's the only thing I can think of. Is there anything else you can think of? Uh, I just think I, I got a vibe from New Orleans that I they are kind of one of those cities. And I could definitely, I would call them a bigger city. Um, it's an interesting city, that's for sure. Uh, but I don't think they like out-of-towners. I really don't, which... There's a little irony in that because Bourbon Street is famous. I mean, people travel from all over. I There were people from, I believe, Spain visiting because, unfortunately, another thing that happened over the weekend was Liverpool losing to Real Madrid in the Champions League final. And we ran into these people that were speaking strictly Spanish and looked like they were from Spain, an entire family, at both the bar to watch the game. And then you kept running into them at Bourbon Street. And it was like a constant reminder, just hammered away at you. So, I mean, clearly Bourbon Street, people travel all over for, and for you to have such a bitter taste for out-of-towners or something like that, and it seemed like it was regularly, I'm not saying that for everyone. I'm not lumping entire New Orleans there. It just seems like you either love it and you're, you're friendly and you're a good person, but then there was definitely a good chunk of people I ran into that, um, were not too kind to me just because what, and by the way, I did not have this experience at all until I put that Bill's hat on. When I didn't have anything that labeled where I was from, if I was not with a large group that also showed where we were from, everyone was great. All of a sudden, I threw on a Bills hat and things did change. It was it was noticeable. So I just find that a little interesting. I find it uh, a destination like New Orleans. I don't know how much they care for out-of-towners. 
And that's kind of with those two gentlemen there, I kind of got that vibe. You know, it'd be funny if I would almost wish I took down their number so I could send them this recording to give them the post-game analysis of how I felt <laughs> about that interaction. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. I mean, Hey, they didn't, they didn't do anything physically. I'll, I'll respect this. You can get into altercations or you can get into arguments with opposition fans that always seem to escalate to, you know, borderline physical, you know, action. And I, I never once felt that that was actually going to happen here. And I never felt it actually got too hostile. Uh, mm-hmm. Once I dropped the Aints line on them, they didn't really care for me anymore. And I knew to wrap it up real quick, <laughs> but um, it was, it was good banter. You know, it, it kind of got, it got the, it got the juices flowing for this season. It got me, you know, we've been doing this pod now for, this is our 11th episode. So you can kind of look at it as almost three months. And um it definitely got it to a point where I'm like, okay, I'm ready for the season. I'm ready to kick it some ass. I'm ready to get going here because, I mean, I need I need those words to be backed up with results. I need it bad. Well, you brought the point up about how the Bills have to win a Super Bowl or else we're always going to be the victim of that. Yeah, but your team doesn't have a ring. And it's so funny. I mean, you'll even make a tweet on Twitter, just or an innocent tweet about like, hey, Zach Wilson looks good in OTAs. And you'll just comment like, okay, good luck with that or whatever. And then some Jets fan will hop in there and be like, hey, win a ring before you can come talk to us. And it's like, motherfucker, you won a ring in the mid 60s. It was probably a great day for your great grandpa. I guarantee you, you weren't alive yet. So, but hey, the 72 Dolphins happened. The Joe Namath Jets happened. Obviously, the Patriots can rub our nose in that dynasty, which by the way, go Golden State Warriors, please. Nobody wants to see Boston win another championship. Um, so I, I feel like it's going to happen for the bills. I don't want to jinx it. It's definitely a hard trophy to win, but come on bills. We have to win the super bowl. We have to get over that hump. So for the rest of our lives, people can stop saying win a ring, win a ring. One last thing I want to ask you about somewhat related to your trip, because you brought this up to me was when you're out of town, you kind of put your phone away. You lived in the moment. You saw one tweet when you were gone, one tweet that was sports related. And it was, are these Bills, the 2022 Bills, the best Bills roster in Bills history? And you asked me that tonight before we got on the air. And my first thought was just kind of laughing and saying no. And then I thought about it some more. And I don't know how laughable it is. And I'll tell you why I thought my initial reaction was laughing and saying no. When you look at those 90s Bills, it's Hall of Fame coach maybe the greatest pass rusher to ever play in the league. One of the best dynamic running backs to ever play in the league. Hall of Famer also. Uh, Hall of Fame quarterback. Hall of Two Hall of Fame wide receivers if you count James Lofton, which obviously you should count James Lofton. And then that doesn't even matter about like Daryl Talley and Cornelius Bennett who aren't in the Hall of Fame, but were Pro Bowl level players. And obviously Steve Tasker, who could be in the Hall of Fame if they opened up that wing to special teamers like him. And, you know, these Bills don't have any Hall of Famers because these players are obviously still playing. And then you start thinking in your head, like, who could be future Hall of Famers? Obviously, Josh Allen comes to mind if his career continues on this trajectory, but it's just hard to compare the two. But I think the thing about this Bills roster that makes it so special is they have the dynamic quarterback, which we've gone over time and time again, is a necessity in 2022. They have that cheat code at quarterback. But their roster is just so deep. When you look at their starting positions, there's really not a weakness. 
Like even their positions that were like, man, I'm kind of eh on that. Like if Devin Singletary is your worst starter, your starters are pretty, pretty good. If Roger Saffold is somebody you're kind of concerned about because of his age, he was a pro bowler last year. This team has talent all over the place. Maybe the Bills lose some people because they don't have what many consider to be super duper high end talent. I would disagree with that. I think the safeties are excellent. The quarterback's excellent. The wide receiver's excellent. They have a couple of excellent offensive linemen, and you can mix in some other players on defense. Obviously, Von Miller's there. But to me, Brandon Bean has done such a good job of insulating this roster at starters and at depth while maneuvering around a very expensive quarterback contract that this team is in position to withstand even some injuries of the season and still make a run as long as that injury doesn't include number 17. Um, so Luca, I'm not, I'm not ready to laugh at that yet. I don't think I could say this is the most talented bills roster yet until they at least get to a super bowl, but I don't think it's as laughable as I initially thought. Yeah. I'm, I think I didn't have the laughable moment you did when I first saw that question. I definitely wanted to make sure I note noted that. And, you know, as you mentioned, bring it up to you because it's it's a good discussion to have um in, in my in my opinion yeah of course when you you look at the post play credentials of other rosters in the history obviously mainly the 90s bills um it it stands out a lot i mean you don't go to four straight super bowls you know and and do everything that they did in their era without having six sevens you know Six, seven pro, uh, sorry, geez, pro football hall of famers, you know, even more pro bowlers, probably in the uh, teens, if you include them on top of whoever else, there's a bunch of talent there, but on top of it, as you bring up a lot, you know, you look under the hood and you could probably disguise the other things that were there because you had, you know, Bruce Smith on the edge. I, it, I, I know you say arguably the best, uh, pass rusher there is it. Stats don't lie and game tape don't lie. Like it's hard for me to say he's not like, it's kind of like the best goalie conversation in hockey. That's even more of a conversation, but there's only one goalie who's won multiple MVPs in league history and literally carried what was probably a non-playoff team to a Stanley cup run. That was an illegal goal away from continuing the series potentially in Dominic Ashik. Like he is the best goaltender of all time. He did it unconventionally. So some people don't like him. It's like, and you have ones with accolades like, you know, Patrick Waugh, who has multiple cups and all that kind of stuff. I get it. But it's like when you watch the tape, this is the best at their position. But regardless, so people like that disguise, you know, bad things or, you know, holes, issues with teams. And I think this roster doesn't have many holes. It's kind of the the threads are seamed so perfectly that you don't have any tears in that in that situation, like you have temporary things that you have a bandaid on, like, you know, Trey white, not being able to play to start the season kind of deal situation beyond that. Once Trey white's back and all that kind of like, it's exactly what a bandaid's for. You just get by. It's not comfortable, but once you rip that bandaid off, baby, you're healed and ready to go. And hopefully back at a hundred percent. That's kind of where this roster is. I mean, from top to bottom, it's really hard to find a spot that you can really go, this is a hole, this is a problem, this could really create issues. I know you're going to bring up a certain topic that I could definitely agree with, um, but it, it it's definitely one of those rosters that even as you look under the hood, you're like, wow, that's a nice clean engine. Everything is ticking well. It seems like it should operate very smoothly. It's a... Uh, 
it's a nice sports car with a nice engine build in it that has been maintained very, very well. And you know, you probably don't have to buy any new, new major parts for it anytime soon. That's, it's a good feeling to have. And it makes that question very valid in my opinion. Yeah. And it's funny because I was going through the nineties the bills and I was like one of the greatest pass rushers of all time. And then you started talking and it just, it's one of these moments again, where I remind myself, holy shit, Von Miller is a Buffalo bill. Cause I'm thinking in my mind, how many hall of famers do they have? And I said, you know, Josh Allen, potentially way too soon for that. Stefan Diggs, depending on what happens with the next four or five years of his career, he, he'd obviously have quite a bit more production to get to, to get to that point, but you never know what's going to happen. Like, you know, he could win a Super Bowl MVP. He could have a couple more Pro Bowl seasons. You start winning Super Bowls and that resume doesn't have to be quite as impressive. But then you're thinking, oh, wait, Von Miller is a Hall of Famer the second he steps off the field as a pro. And, you know, that's your answer to Bruce Smith. I agree with you. Bruce Smith is the best pass rusher of all time. Reggie White, obviously right there in that conversation. Bruce Smith was a two gapper. It's just, it's hard to imagine. I mean, look, all the best pass rushers have been double teamed. I get that. But to be a three, four front defensive end and get that many sacks. It's incredible what he did. But yeah, this roster, there's, there's not a lot of holes. And I know the first thing I know you're thinking, um, I'm going to go a different direction and I'm going to later in the show. But, um, the first thing I always think of is like, man, the one thing that makes me nervous outside of a quarterback injury, which hello, any, any team in the league loses their quarterback. The season's in the tank probably, um, is, and I think case Keenan could probably keep the ship afloat for a month or two, but if it's like, Allen's out for the year, just wrap it up. Um, it's the tackle situation, right? It's if Deion Dawkins goes down, but you start thinking about it. It's like Spencer Brown will be in his second year. They would kick him over to left tackle. It wasn't great when he went to left tackle last year. Um, so then what does that mean? Quisenberry goes to right tackle or second year development of Tommy Doyle goes to right tackle. And then you're like, well, what if Spencer Brown and Deion Dawkins go down? And then you just kind of bang your head on the desk. Like, okay, how many teams in the damn league can withstand losing two tackles? Like not many. Look what happened to the Chiefs in the Super Bowl against the Bucks. They lost both their tackles. They had no shot. This roster is very impressive. Luca, we um we're going to get into that roster tonight. We're going to start talking about on the offensive side of the ball here. Um the draft is behind us. Free agency is mostly behind us, but we're here about ready to turn the page into June. Uh, we're in the middle of OTAs and we're going to get into some topics of what would we add to this roster? What is missing? What would make this roster feel complete? What's realistic? Like we're not going to talk about tonight. Like, Oh, if the bills could just add Cooper cup, like that's not a realistic option. If the bills could add Aaron Donald, no. Is there a free agent out there that makes sense for the bills? Is there a trade idea that makes sense for the bills given their, their current situation with the salary cap? But there is some news today. First of all, Josh Allen and Patrick Mahomes are going to take the course tomorrow night in the match against Tom Brady and Aaron Rodgers on TNT. Uh, I am going to watch every minute of that. I am super excited and I am afraid of how into it I'm going to be as far as the score goes. I might actually be more into the trash talk. Um, I will definitely get triggered if Rodgers or Brady make a comment about how Allen's the only guy out there without a Super Bowl ring. So it's all in good fun. Got to have a good personality about it. But man, that'll, that'll definitely trigger me. Uh, Luca, you fired up for the match? Oh, super fired up. What what more could I really ask for in the beginning of June than uh, not only golf, but then Josh Allen and Rogers, for that matter, playing golf? I mean, those those are probably two of my top 10 must-watches in the NFL. I mean, Josh Allen, obviously number one, 
But Rodgers, he could even be top five for me, just personally. Like, I've always loved him. So having both of them out there, definitely different personalities as well. Um, and then you add Tom Brady. And oh, and, and to, to your point, a ring comment will come. I, I imagine Josh Allen's shit talk game is going to be great. I mean, he keeps hyping it up and we've seen what he can do and how he talks. And I, it's part of the thing that I love about Josh Allen's personality. I think he can clap at anyone and then he can back it up kind of deal. So it will happen. And I'm sure Brady will just, you know, hold up a seven or something. And then, you know, you just die a little inside, but um, it, it it's going to be great. Like the smack talk is going to be there just as good, hopefully as the golf. I mean, Rogers just for whatever it's worth. Uh, he's been like a pro trainer working with him for the past. I want to say it's been at least a couple of weeks, if not a month, because he's got this and Lake Tahoe where he's been, you know, talking a little bit to Pat McAfee and AJ Hawk and stuff. And I, I'm sure they have money on the line between the three of them. So he's been working hard on his golf game. So I bet you the golf quality, we know Brady's good at golf. Uh, Rogers is still, I mean, he's already played one and he looked pretty good. Uh, Alan, I'm sure can absolutely rip the ball. I mean, we've seen a video of him at a top golf, like do the same thing he did with the softball bat where it just came off the face. And then he just turned around cause he knew it was gone, which it was. I mean, Pat McAfee talks about that moment and he says he has never heard that sound off of a driver before in his life. And, uh, in Mahomes, I, I know is a good golfer. He's played at Lake Tahoe and that, that pro-am event and stuff like that. And he he's he's got a good swing. I, I will say this. I, I don't care for Mahomes when it comes to the football field, but man, his golf swing is good. Uh, he, it's that baseball, you know, he's, he's got that nice tempo. He's, he can he can really focus and maintain, you know, hand eye coordination. He's, he's got a nice, smooth swing to him, um, although it was a little junky the last time I watched him in the at Lake Tahoe. But no, overall, not to ramble too much here. I am very, very, very excited. I was excited about it when it got announced. I'm very excited that it's here. I actually forgot that it was tomorrow until you said tomorrow. So now I'm all jacked up, ready to go about that. I might not even game with the boys tomorrow just so I can be watching that exclusively. Probably not actually going to happen. I'll have it on a side TV, but that's okay. Um, yeah, very, very excited. I, I hope Josh, like, drains one from one with 80 out like Brady did in the first ever match or something like that happens to just give him an absolute like mic drop moment on the rest of them. He needs to do something and I am rooting for it and I'm here for it and I'll be watching every second. The thing I love most about Josh Allen, I think could actually work against him is he is such a competitor and he has such a desire to basically let you know in a, not a cocky way, but in a, I just need you to know that I'm better than you. And I could just see him being the guy that's trying to hit 400 off the tee every time just because he knows he can outdrive those guys. And that can work against you in golf. I'm excited about this. It To me, it has a lot of similarities to the NFL draft where you've gone months without football and then you get a weekend that's dedicated to football. Here, the draft stuff has died down. It's been a few weeks. And now there's this golf event where they're all going to be mic'd for 12 holes. I believe the... um, like Charles Barkley might be in the booth for this. I could be wrong on that. I know it's on TNT and Josh Allen yeah, was, on, are, was on. You are correct. Yeah. Barkley's yeah, he, always involved in these things because he's always got, you know, half a million dollars in bets going on. And Josh Allen was on Barkley's podcast this week, which was pretty cool. Um, Steve Tasker said on One Bills Live today that Josh Allen has done nothing but play golf the last couple of weeks just to get ready. And that is a good transition because he was not present at OTAs today. Again, these are all voluntary, not a huge deal. The list of absent bills was growing longer, which I guess you could understand that. Look, if Josh Allen's not there, 
why is Diggs going to show up? He, he, you know, he's caught passes from Case Keenan before. He's probably cool on that. Um, there were uh, some interesting things today to take away. Ken Dorsey talked for the first time as offensive coordinator. Uh, Gabe Davis, Mitch Morse, and Devin Singletary also took the mic today. Uh, but I think the big one was Dorsey. It was interesting to see what he was going to sound like. I mean, we hadn't really heard him in this forum before. Luke, I know you listened to it. I had a chance to listen to it on the way home tonight. Any takeaways from the Dorsey press conference? I think the biggest takeaway I took from it was honestly what everyone is very interested in. And, and is that it, it it's, they want to know what his play call style is going to be. And it comes to both, you know, obviously where's his mindset at. And I feel like that's the easier answer. And then for whatever odd reason, there was a lot of interest in, is he going to be calling plays from down low? Is he going to be calling <sighs> plays from up in the booth? Like Gable, like, like that actually matters. And it, and I even wrote in our notes in nice bold letters, like, does that actually matter? Like, did is it more effective to call it up in the booth or is it more effective to call in the field? I feel like that answer is it's whatever you feel best at because, and I'm sure you'll dive more into it too. You have greats like Andy Reid who have always been on the sideline. Now he's also a head coach, so he kind of has to be. You can't be a head coach up in the booth. But I feel like that's probably where he's comfortable anyways. He's been doing it there for so long. You don't ever remember Andy Reid being in the booth. I, I mean, I don't. I don't ever remember there being a time like that. And these other great play callers call amazing games from down on the field. So what does it matter if they're not in the booth? Like, I get the concept and why you would want to be in the booth, but I don't think it really matters, especially in the thing I took away from Dorsey himself was, he seems to be a guy to me. If you read his mannerisms, you read how he kind of talked about it. I feel like he's going to call it from down below. He loved, he made a comment and I think I wrote it down here where he, he really liked, you know, to maintain the feel of the game and, you know, the feel of the guys and, you know, how Diggs is feeling, how Knox is feeling, how Allen's feeling, things like that, you know, cause he was the guy who was doing that at the time and then reporting it to Dable on game days. So, why would you change it? Why would, if that's been working for you and you enjoy that and that puts you in a good headspace and you want to do that now while also obviously having to call plays, why change it? Why, why change anything? Because I don't think there's any, there's an advantage of seeing the field during the game, obviously, but you've already called what you're calling. So at that point, especially in a day of technology where if you need to see what's going on after the fact, just pull out a tablet, you know, once a drive is over, you know, and, just make adjustments off of that if you really need to, because essentially that's what you're doing in the booth. You just maybe can do it. What? 30 seconds sooner. I, I, I don't, I don't see a massive need to care about this, but the large takeaway I took, cause they even stemmed that into Gabe Davis's thing, which there was a comment made there um, about <laughs> jokingly, but you know, Davis basically saying he gets Dorsey gets real fired up real easy on game days and with the guys. So he wants to put him up top. <laughs> keep them I away saw that, yeah yeah i thought that was funny but and he was acting like you know they have the say but if i'm dorsey man and and things are working good and you like being on the you, you like being on the sideline to just get a better feel of what's going on why change it like the just keep the good times rolling do whatever you're most comfortable with and hopefully everything's okay for whatever reason sports fans have been conditioned to think that being in the booth is the best place to be so if Dorsey starts the season off on the sideline and anything starts going wrong, 
you can just count on callers calling in the WGR saying, this is all because Dorsey's not in the booth. He's calling plays from the sideline. Look, to your point, it's a very archaic way of looking at it. It reminds me a lot of why does Wade Phillips not wear a headset conversation or hockey fans arguing about which player is going to wear the A on his sweater as like the alternate captain or whatever. And it's like, this is cool, but like, let's, let's talk about something that maybe is a little bit more impactful. And to me, he can pull up a tablet, like you said, and see the all 22 five seconds after the play happens. I would personally think I'd rather be in the booth just because it's a little bit calmer and you can kind of take the emotion out of it. I could see a situation where you're on the sidelines and Diggs runs over and he's like, I'm cooking my guy. Give me the ball. And then you just like, oh, yeah, I got to make Diggs happy being removed from that. There's probably some pluses there, but these guys aren't little league coaches like they've been doing this their entire lives. They know how to deal with emotion. They know how to deal with players that want the ball. This is the NFL for crying out loud. Every player wants the ball. Every player thinks they're a superstar. If he wants to be on the sideline, be on the sideline. If he wants to be in the booth, be in the booth. I can promise you at no point on game day will I be thinking, well, that went wrong because he was a on the sideline or B in the booth. Yeah. And, and another point about Dorsey, especially, I mean, think about where Dorsey came from as a player. I mean, he yeah. came from you with a lot of personalities. Oh man. And you can only imagine the shit that was talked about to him as the quarterback for those teams and what they wanted him to do. I'm sure he can handle big personalities without issue. Cause you don't hear any of those guys talking poorly about how Dorsey was. They were successful under him. Like he knows what he's doing. He, he I think he would be able to handle the sideline. Okay. He would, you know, to your point, I think it's a great point, by the way, pulling the emotion out of it. I think the one thing that might get him caught is based on how Davis talked about it. Yeah. Maybe he himself will put himself in a blender or, you know, maybe he will just be like, ah, oh, like I keep seeing this and I'm not calling it. Like, let's do it. Like, like, like just send it, you know, the, the old fuck it. We'll do it live. Like he'll, he'll <laughs> get himself into that kind of, you know, headspace. And, uh, that would be maybe what other people could fear. But beyond that, I don't think he would be someone that could get influenced by outside I think it would all be internal influence more than anything else that maybe gets him caught. But I mean, some people thrive on that too. Mm -hmm. I think that's another thing that people don't think about. Like they think, Oh, he's getting over emotional. Like that's a problem. Like I'll tell you what, and, and I told you off air and stuff, how I feel about gambling and, you know, going to a casino, I need good vibes and I need energy. I need to be emotional. You know, you can't be overly emotional. Of course you got to have some sort of balance so you can't get, you know, hard on yourself and things like that. But I need to, I like, I almost can't sit at a table by myself because then there's nothing going on. Like I need, I need outside things there to just help my own internal energy get going and things like that. That helps me thrive. And then success comes with it. Like I always, people come with me to the casino all the time and go, you know, what are some tips? And I tell them all the time, cause I'm a mainly roulette guy. I will play blackjack sometimes, but mainly roulette. And I go roulette's honestly a game of chance, right? The house doesn't honestly care too much on the deal, at least where it lands. They have no control over that for the most part. And you are just betting whatever you feel is good. Your gut feeling, whatever it may be. When the vibes are good on a table, I will tell you straight up, I have won probably in walked away positive money over 75% of the time it has to be. When the vibes are good and the energy is good and the emotions are good and you it's rolling like you're in it. I, it's been great. I mean, this past weekend in New Orleans, there was a 45 minute span that I, I started with 200 on the table and I walked away with over $600. And it was just because the table was feeling good and everyone's having a good time. And what are you feeling over there? What do you, what are you thinking? Blah, blah, blah. How's it, you know, how's it going? And all of a sudden everything just keeps hitting, just keeps hitting tables winning. 
and everything's good. Some people thrive in emotion. Some people thrive in energy. And maybe Dorsey's that guy. So maybe you don't want to take him out of that as long as he can, you know, maybe not let the negative uh, side effects of emotion at times, you know, if things aren't going right, if he can still kind of balance that out and everything like that, then we're good. So just a little bit, like some people thrive in it. Some people don't. I totally love your opinion on that. I think pulling it out entirely, not necessarily a bad idea if you're a booth person, but Hey, who knows? Maybe Dorsey's a guy that needs to be in it to feel it. There's a lot of pressure on Dorsey too. There's really no way around it. This isn't like a soft landing spot to call plays for the first time for a team with no expectations or for the Detroit Lions where you can just get some play calling on on your resume, but the games really don't have that high leverage. He's taking over play calling for a team that has what many consider to be one of the best quarterbacks in the entire league, if not the best. He's taking over for a guy who is regarded as one of the best offensive play callers in the league for a team that has Super Bowl aspirations for an offense that's been excellent the past two years. So any drop off offensively is going to fall square on his shoulders. This is, you know, you you don't want to paint too negative of a picture here, but it's just the reality of his situation with high expectations comes high pressure. And he is in a situation where he has to deliver and there really is no time for him to get his feet wet. Now, sure, this roster is talented enough where if he hits some bumps along the way, they can overcome those. But when it comes into big games and there are some big games early on the schedule, they're starting off with the Super Bowl champions for crying out loud before hosting the number one seed from the AFC in week number two, uh, two guys who are up for coach of the year honors the last few years. This is going to be a situation where he has to hit the ground running. Now you can not get very much out of a press conference, especially for a Sean McDermott coach. I think, I think he has these guys schooled on what to and what not to say. Um, but Dorsey, the vibe I got listening to him today was the moment doesn't feel like it's going to be too big for him. It seems like he's been schooled for this. Um, he's ready for this. And he was the passing game coordinator the last year. So it's not like he was just a quarterback coach. Um, there was an article where he was even texting digs every day, every day last year when he was the quarterback coach slash passing game coordinator. So they already have that relationship built. I think he's going to do fine. Um, but it's worth mentioning, like if, if it doesn't go well and doesn't go well early, they do have Joe Brady on staff. And if for whatever reason, Dorsey feels like, okay, he's in way over his head. The bills have insulated themselves with a guy who at one point in time was considered one of the best up and coming young play callers in the league, probably could have gotten an offensive coordinator job somewhere else in the league, came to Buffalo to be the quarterback coach. Just something to monitor. I'm not predicting Dorsey will fail, but I don't think he's going to have a super duper long leash if it gets off to a rocky start. Yeah, for sure. Joe Brady, I almost forgot about that. That's a great point. Um, yeah, it's that's almost like a beautiful, like just like card in the back pocket kind of situation. That's a man kind of threw me off at that point there. Uh, yeah, it, I, I think he's going to be fine too. As you mentioned, you know, he was already kind of the passing game coordinator, you know, and I wrote it down here and it seems like he wants to go at games. You know, we might, might even see, I'm very curious to see how much more aggressive he could even be, but man, that could be a lot of fun if they have something up their sleeve that can allow this offense to be even more aggressive. The thought of Josh Allen being even more aggressive in the passing game and everything like that just has me salivating. I, I can't even imagine if if it all clicks right and it is truly more aggressive and we see like, you know, a 6,000 passing yard Josh Allen. Oh my <laughs> goodness. 
what a time to be alive um yeah but having joe brady in your back pocket and like it'd be crazy even if like say say dorsey hits the ground running and maybe he wants to go back to miami like who knows like something like that he's using this as a springboard to show what he can do if you actually put talent with him and he knows what he's doing now and he wants to go somewhere maybe that's more comfortable for him personally like and then you got joe brady just walking in who now understands the system after a year or two like how crazy is that to think about because like the one thing you always worry about with success not that it's a bad thing is that eventually your coordinators and things like that move on Mm -hmm. well it's nice almost to have like not only did you create depth in your roster all of a sudden you just created depth in your coaching staff potentially that is what a luxury to have that is and for joe brady there's a lot of similarities to me with how Mitch Trubisky was here last year, where he's a guy that probably, if he wanted to, could have gone out and competed for a starting job last year. Who knows? But he decided he was going to come to Buffalo, be a backup for a strong team, kind of take a year to reset, reset his market, and then be able to go out and kind of pick where he goes. Now, look, it didn't really work out for Trubisky. I think people weren't as excited about him as we expected. But for Joe Brady, Assuming the Bills have a good offense and Dorsey's fine and Dorsey's here next year and doesn't take the starting head coaching job at Miami or doesn't get promoted to an NFL head coach, which I think both of those things are possible. Joe Brady's the quarterback coach who was here under Ken Dorsey in Buffalo for a winning program. Coach Josh Allen, he'll get some credit for that, whether he deserves it or not, will probably be able to pick his spot because teams are always looking for that young, bright offensive mind. Um, Speaking of offense, it was the offensive players turn to talk today. We did mention Josh Allen wasn't there. So Case Keenum took all the reps along with Matt Barkley. Uh, Devin Singletary took the podium and um, nothing too earth shattering said that he's been mentoring James Cook. Those guys work out together in Florida. They they did that even pre-draft where Devin Singletary, James Cook and Dalvin Cook were working out together in the same group. Um, Mitch Morris talked about how nice it's going to be to play alongside Roger Saffold and call them basically a steady Eddie that, you know, is going to be there down in and down out. You hear nothing but good things about Roger Saffold. Um, and then the last guy that I really want to talk about though, is Gabe Davis. I had a chance to hear what he said about how Ken Dorsey's going to have to play or you know, be in the booth. That was pretty funny. I didn't hear the entire press conference though. Luca, you had some takeaways from the Gabe Davis press conference you wanted to get into. Yeah, I mean, first and foremost, he sounded like things were doing, you know, things were good with Dorsey and early on. And it sounds like it seems like he's very comfortable. And maybe that's a reflection of everyone, too, that everyone's comfortable with Dorsey and the the slight change that is for him coming from Dable. Um, and then another thing that was brought, he kind of, I, I can't remember if it was kind of just brought up by him or if, um, if uh, someone pointed it out, but uh, they, they kind of asked him about, or he at least responded to something with that. He's continuing to work on his hands and his ability to get off press because he is targeting that as the way people will play him. And he's always been that big outside receiver that that's how teams and defenses want to attack him. So he wants to continue to work on that. And then also he brought up that Emmanuel Sanders at the end of last, last season, you know, kind of gave him some uh, tips, hints, things like that about footwork and what to do pre-snap and all that when it comes to his feet, which if there's a guy to talk to you about his feet, Emmanuel Sanders has proven in this league for a long time or had proven if his career is over now um, that, you know, he made a living with his footwork. That was probably his greatest trait that, and he was, he was reliable hands, but like I always remembered Emmanuel Sanders back, even with like the Steelers and then the Broncos, like his 
route running and his footwork was always immaculate. It was always what got him in the perfect spot for guys like Peyton Manning. And I'm sure Peyton had some influence to that too, like telling him exactly what he wanted. And it just seemed to work perfectly in, you know, in Ben Roethlisberger before that too. Um, but it, it it's, it's awesome to see that Gabe is comfortable. He's now, you know, he, he seems like he's kind of in the routine of being a pro. He's focusing on his craft. He's getting to the next level. He's comfortable with everything in the organization. And then, you know, even can make the light of, you know, that the guys see Dorsey getting fired up as I brought up before, you know, so if they have any say, he's going to be up in the booth. You know, it's, it was, it was a quick presser. I think it was only about seven minutes, maybe seven and a half minutes. Um, but everything seems good with Gabe Davis. And it seems like Gabe realizes the opportunity in front of him and realizes that this is a year that can really make his career and hopefully does. And the potential, we saw what his last game played. We saw exactly what his ceiling is, if not even greater. I don't know how you can have a greater ceiling than that (laughs) game, but (laughs) you know, take the touchdowns away. He could probably even have bigger games yardage wise than that. And if he's on the field regularly and he's that threat over there, opposite of Diggs or however you want to say it, because of course Diggs moves around just a little bit. um, It could be a massive year for him. And I love that he seems comfortable and yet focused on working on it and getting better. And it could only mean good things for us. Davis is such an interesting player for this 2022 bills. And that's kind of where I want to dive into tonight's topic of where this offense could still use some work, where it could use some improvement, what we would maybe like to see added to it in, before the Bills take training camp at St. John Fisher. And the reason why Davis is interesting is if you think back the last couple years, if the Bills had a wide receiver group of Stefan Diggs, John Brown, Cole Beasley, there was always that thought in the back of your mind, okay, somebody gets hurt. Gabe Davis steps in and you're just fine. Last year, Stefan Diggs, Cole Beasley, Emmanuel Sanders, somebody gets hurt. Gabe Davis steps in probably even better than two of those three guys. If he's on the field, just continues to make plays. You didn't even worry about it. To me, the scary thing about this bill's roster. And again, it's, it's kind of like, you know, the bills are in a good spot. So if this is your biggest issue, maybe you don't have a lot of issues, but we talked about this a lot in the run up to the draft and maybe on the tail end of free agency outside of Gabe Davis and Stefan Diggs, the bills do not have an outside receiver that I feel good about. So if you can sit here and promise me today that Stefan Diggs and Gabe Davis are going to be hundred percent healthy and play the majority of the snaps outside, and it'll be a rotation of Jamison Crowder, Isaiah McKenzie, Khalil Shakir in the slot. Sign me up. That's a strong wide receiver group. When you start listing the names, Stefan Diggs, Gabe Davis, Jamison Crowder, Isaiah McKenzie. It sounds good. Khalil Shakir, decent prospect. Sounds good. The issue to me all along has been what happens if one of the outside guys gets hurt? So I know there's been a lot of topic on WGR and Bill's Twitter about should the Bills go out and sign a Julio Jones or a Will Fuller or an Odell Beckham? And I understand the side of the coin of it's like, okay, why are you going to do this to Gabe Davis? He's finally got his opportunity. I think we have to have two separate conversations about this. To me, it's not an indictment of Gabe Davis if you go out and insulate your boundary receiver position. Now, Odell Beckham maybe is a little bit different animal because he has such cachet that he's obviously going to be on the field if he's healthy. But this is going to be 
primarily a three wide receiver team. I don't think it has to be written in stone that Davis and Diggs are boundary boundary receivers. They just are the only two guys on this team that can play boundary effectively, in my opinion, proven wise. I think you could easily go out and sign another boundary receiver and then throw Davis in the slot if you want to, or throw Diggs in the slot, or just mix and match who's in your slot. You don't have to have a defined slot like you've had with, with Cole Beasley. I don't anticipate the Bills are going to do that, any kind of strong swing. If anything, I could see a situation where once training camp gets closer, maybe Emmanuel Sanders gets that itch and he's like, hey guys, let me run it back with you one more year and I'll be the Gabe Davis where somebody gets hurt, I'll come on the field and I'll be fine. Maybe that's the ideal landing spot. But to me, Luca, for me to feel like this offense really is running on the highest of high levels that it can be, I'd love to see just one more name in that wide receiver room. Doesn't have to be a superstar. Doesn't have to be Beckham. Doesn't have to be Julio Jones. But to me, even someone like a Will Fuller, who you know coming in, if you want him to be a full-time starter, he's probably going to let you down with his health. But a guy that you can just break glass in case of emergency, bring him out there if somebody gets hurt and you can survive with him for a few games. I don't know. Not the worst idea. What do you think about the Bills' current wide receiver situation? I'm kind of with you on it. I I do think bringing another boundary uh, experienced wide receiver uh, is a great idea because as you have brought up, you really do have just those two guys that you can reliably put there. Um, I will, I will say I'm always impressed with McKenzie when he's had to get put there. Obviously, you know, it's not someone you want to lean on all the time, but if it brings the situation in kind of like you brought up where you want to bring, you know, your, you slide digs in and then all of a sudden you motion, you know, McKenzie out, how are you set McKenzie out? Then you, you, you want to maintain digs in however you want to play the matchup game. We'll call it. I think McKenzie can hold his own. We'll, we'll chalk it up to, I, I will say though, yes, it would be awesome to kind of bring in. I mean, I would love the idea of Julio. I think that'd be great. Obviously his legs are not there anymore. He's very injury prone still. Yeah. He's 33 years old at this point. Like it would be very tough to, you know, what can you rely on? But if you really only are kind of using him as the break glass in case of emergency and maybe he's only seen 10 to 15 snaps a game and he's just trying to ride a team for a ring. This is a great situation for that. Um, Will Fuller's a good idea. Um, it, it doesn't seem like an idea. I think the bills would go um, only because he does have kind of that injury concern as well. I think he's a less proven commodity on top of it. Like he can blow the top off of you. He's out, outside experience, but I don't, I don't even know off the top of my head how many times he's really been reliable and been there, but I feel like it's almost zero seasons that he's ever had an entire available season, whether it was suspension or that, you know, injury purpose. Um, I kind of see them going more. I don't think the Julio thing is realistic, but like you have guys like T.Y. Hilton or Alan Hearns, like those are not sexy names that they, you know, ever were to begin with. But I mean, I love T.Y. Hilton back in his prime, but it's that's kind of the way if they even wanted to bring an outside in, like that's kind of what they would do. Cause T Y Hilton is kind of just a John Brown situation. So maybe they'd be comfortable with it with outside wide receiver experience. Alan Hearns, not quite the same thing, but has outside experience and you know, he can be there just to kind of get you by if you need to plug him in on that outside spot. I kind of look at it as a, uh, 
kind of what the Niners did with Mohamed Sanu. They just brought in a guy that if they really needed to, he can just kind of fill the need that they have out there at wide receiver. And then they can keep putting everyone else, whether it was Brandon Ayuk or Debo in their spots that they are preferred and use them, you know, as if there's no issues. Obviously, Sanu then brings in a problem that the one or two times you really need to rely on him, it's probably not going to be there, you know, where you want it to be. But um, yeah, I it could be, I would love to see it. I would love to see them add one more piece there and just kind of give you that nice, cozy, warm, weighted blanket to make you feel like, okay, if we lose Davis or Diggs for, let's say, two, three, four games, this guy can maybe fill in or even just lose him during a game to some, you know, like he pulled a hammy or something. You just bring this guy in to close out the game and hopefully do their job enough that you didn't notice too much of a drop off. That would be nice. Um, I, I definitely see where you come from with that and everything like that. At the same time, do I realistically think it's going to happen? No, I don't see Emmanuel Sanders coming back. Also, I don't. I think he's he seems. You think if he wanted to get one more go, yes, of course. There's always that almighty itch. But if you think he wanted one more go, he would have been pretty. He would have known it sooner rather than later. And at this point in time, like him being on Good Morning Football for guest appearances and stuff like that, I think he's pretty comfortable with accepting transitioning into his media or whatever next career. Um, so I don't see that boat coming anytime soon, but they could maybe flirt around with the whole thing is like maybe an injury in camp or a knock in camp, even like say Gabe Davis just like has a hamstring issue all of a sudden in, in camp and that might alert them enough to trigger buying a guy, you know, going out there and getting a Julio if he's still available, God forbid. Um, if the cost is right too something like that, like that would be nice. It would almost be like if the scare happened early on, hopefully not too major. And they were just like, okay, maybe we do need to make sure we have that third outside wide receiver threat kind of deal just in case. Cause right now you're looking at Kumaro essentially, or McKenzie, like I brought up, like he's been utilizes that. I think Khalil Shakir does have that ability. Although being a rookie in the league, you're probably not going to ask him to do that early on. Um, but Kumaro is kind of like your traditional, we'll call it outside guy. That's not exactly the warm and fuzzy feeling I'm thinking of or you're thinking of for sure. You want someone that actually is, you know, he's not more or less just a run blocker. He actually can be a receiver. Um, yeah, I I get where you're coming from. I like where the head's at. Do I think anything's going to happen? Probably. I still would say 60-40, probably not. I do think that right now the Bills and um, Bean are kind of like still keeping their eye on free agents, veteran free agents seeing what they're asking for, stuff like that. I mean, like, like if it comes to, you know, late June, you know, and all of a sudden Julio's like, hey, man, I'll I'll take a, you know, vet men deal just to ride the coattails here and come along. And, and Bean's kind of like, you know, if they are thinking about that, maybe he does pull the trigger on that. And then we have a nice little Julio there. And that'd be cool. Like just to have Julio as a bill would be pretty cool. But no, I'm, I'm going to wrap up here. Uh, I don't think they're doing that unless a great opportunity comes along. Or, you know, maybe a scare comes along. I think they're comfortable where things are more or less because history has shown like things like McKenzie stepping in when needed. Or I do think they understand the utilization that is Khalil Shakir and kind of like where he can go all around. Like he has shown that he can do it in flashes here and there in college. And then, you know, they have shown that they'll play Kumaro, you know, 10, 15 snaps sometimes. I think they've done it 
I want to say three games in the history of him being a bill. And, you know, it's, it's obviously more of a package situation, but still, I think there's enough of a comfortable uh, feeling with who they have in that receiver room that I don't think it's in the forefront of their mind or like at least viewed as a need at this point. Yeah, I agree with you. I don't expect it to happen. I think if something were to happen, it might be along the same lines of what they did with Kenny Stills in 2020, where they find a veteran who maybe maybe even T.Y. Hilton is too good for this. Maybe even like a Deshaun Jackson, like a very specific veteran who wants to come onto a team, maybe win a ring, and is okay being inactive until his number's called. Because when you think about it, this really is almost an inactive spot for a wide receiver because you have Diggs and Davis, obviously. You assume Crowder's going to get a jersey. You assume McKenzie's going to get a jersey, if nothing for kick returns. I guess Shakir doesn't have to get a jersey, but you're kind of running out of room here. Kumaro's going to be out there because he's one of their best special teamers. So it's almost a situation where you want to find that veteran to maybe just put on the practice squad or to keep on the game day inactive. But you know, someone like Julio Jones isn't going to run down the field and cover kicks on special teams. So that could be tricky. Um, they did mention that Khalil Shakir has that Gabe Davis flexibility where he can play inside and outside and maybe be that, that primary backup at all three positions. So maybe that's their plan for him. And I do think it's also two different conversations of, look, if they lose Gabe Davis or Stefan Diggs for two, three, four weeks, they can generate a passing game with other players they have on this team. They do have Dawson Knox and OJ Howard and two tight end sets. They did draft James Cook, who's probably the best pass catching back in the draft and could run some routes as a wide receiver. And they obviously have Josh Allen who could just throw the ball to himself if he needs to. And they have a good running game. And I think they could make it work. Where I'm concerned is, you know, a situation where Gabe Davis or Stefan Diggs go out for the year. And is that a season tanker? And, you know, it's a tough conversation to have. You don't want to think about that, but it's conversations that they, they need to be having within the walls of one bill's drive because this team is championship ready and there should only be one injury on this team long-term that takes them out of the Super Bowl window. And that's 17. I don't care if it's Diggs. Diggs is excellent. You have to have people behind him where you feel like if Josh Allen is that dude, he can carry these guys to give them a shot in January. And I don't know right now if what's behind Stefan Diggs, if they could make that work, but I think they probably feel better about it than we do. And to their credit, they've had some success developing guys. And there's been guys along the way that I was ready to give up on before they were. And in a lot of ways, they've been proven to be right. I was not one who wanted to give up on Dawson Knox. There were fans who wanted to. And last year he boomed. Devin Singletary, a lot of people want to give up on him. I was pretty close to it. Wouldn't say he boomed, but he had a solid year turned into what was not a weakness on the team anymore and actually had a lot of us thinking maybe they don't have to address running back in the draft. Not the two of us on this show, but a lot of people thinking that. So I think, you know, they lose Davis, you assume, or they lose Diggs. They have, they still have Davis. They still have Knox. They still have OJ Howard. They still have Crowder. They still have McKenzie. They still have Cook. You know, they'd probably be okay, but there's just, I feel like there's that need for that one more body that would just kind of make everything feel a little bit warmer and fuzzy. I do wonder what's happening with Isaiah Hodgins because I really liked his profile coming out of college and he just, for whatever reason, could not stay healthy. Interesting, interesting player. I think he's going to have a tough time making this team, but I sure would like to see him get a shot. Luca, are there any other positions you're concerned about? I feel really good about where they're at with quarterback. 
I feel like Case Keenum is about as good as it gets for what they could afford at backup quarterback when they obviously weren't going to pay to keep Trubisky. Um, Case Keenum to me gives them that guy that if Allen has to miss a month, he can probably go three and one or maybe even two and two, and that's fine uh, with this roster. Um, I, I'm not worried about that. Is there any position outside of wide receiver that really stands out to you as a position the Bills really should try to address before training camp? On the offensive side of the ball, it's hard for me to really find anything. Um, I think Questenberry and when he came in, almost in a quiet little way, just really, it reassured a lot of things. I mean, you don't have to rely on Tommy Doyle being that, you know, that six lineman that swing tackle situation you you have Questenberry a little bit of a more established veteran that will be able to kind of come in and do his job what you need him to do and then your your backup guard position is still kind of where it is but you've gotten a you have a better solution there at left guard which is Saffold so Bates can sit there at right guard that kind of whole situation I think I think I'm pretty decent with the offensive line. I will say I'm a lot more comfortable with the offensive line this year than I was last year. I know um, we talked about it a while ago, much before we started the pod, and you went into last year thinking we'd be okay and right tackle would be set, and it turned out you know, that was clearly not the case, and we just lucked out in a way that Spencer Brown was much more pro-ready than a player at his position drafted when he was normally is. Thank God for that. But... um, I am much more comfortable, and I I will say at that point last season, I did not like our right tackle situation. I thought uh, Daryl was not the way to go. I I thought it was kind of like it's not going to really pan out how you think it is. That's kind of what I feared, and I was hoping I was wrong, of course. like I wanted it to work, but this year I'm much more comfortable with the situation and everything that it goes with both the starting five and then the depth that's there. I'm definitely okay with everything going on. I mean, my my feelings about Cody Ford are known, but again, I can't be upset about a backup guard. Like, why? What's the point in being upset over that? So, um, yeah, I'm good there. When it comes to the defensive side, if we want to touch on that real quick, like, I still kind of look at like bringing in a veteran corner. I don't think you bring in a veteran corner as a starter, even like I do personally want them to start Kyir Elam, but we've talked about how um, they don't do that normally they they kind of really like it's not like to the extreme of like a bruce arians or a uh um what you call it a um uh bill belichick where they kind of just don't exist on the roster if you're a rookie but i i they they kind of ease them in they don't put them in you know tough predicaments they kind of want them to feel out the pro level their first year so that when they can then get an entire off season they're up to speed better things like that i find us in a situation where i think he's already a good enough athlete and things like that, that you can still kind of start him and, and just deal with the growing pains. That is a rookie at corner in the NFL, but behind him, like I'm okay with Dane Jackson. I don't feel great about it, but you know, Dane's been around. He kind of does the job. He's not going to do anything crazy for you. I don't think, but he's not going to be horrible either. I mean, he's not going to be, you know, I'm trying to think of like a notoriously horrible corner, like a, like a Justin Bethel for the Cardinals. Like he's not going to be that bad. So, but behind him, I mean, you're looking at Cam Lewis, you're looking at uh, Christian Benford, a rookie they drafted in the sixth round. Like that's, that's not warm and fuzzy when Trey's out. And even when Trey's back, I mean, God forbid someone picks up a knock during a game, you know, then you're again, you're thin. You, you don't have much going on there. 
Um, Taron Johnson is staying in the slot. So I, I don't include him in this conversation. He is, he is a nickel corner. He's, he's the nickelback. He's essentially a slot corner slash. He's our third linebacker. Like that's kind of what he is. So he doesn't come into this conversation. So I wouldn't mind bringing in a veteran corner still, as long as it's there. It's just what is really realistically out there. Not much. So again, it's kind of like wide receivers as well, where I don't think actually anything's going to come of it. I think, I think the inside the building, they're a little more comfortable with Cam Lewis than the rest of us still somehow. Um, I'm not trying to knock Cam Lewis or anything. It's just, I would not describe my feelings about him as comfortable. Um, but you, you, there are still enough names out there that I feel like that as long as the price is good and they're not uncomfortable with what the guys are asking for, I wouldn't mind seeing that come in just to, it's kind of exactly like the wide receiver situation. It's like, I don't think that what we have there is a problem. I just think one more body, especially a veteran body that's used to the outside corner position would definitely make me feel a lot better with where everything's at. I think that would just, even with a knock here or even potentially two. at that point, of course, you're just scraping the barrel and it's things aren't great. Like hopefully it's not long-term injuries there, but during a game, I mean, that kind of stuff does happen, especially at a twitchy like position at corner and outside corner at that, like, you know, you're going to pull something, you might get a cramp, whatever it may be. Having that extra guy there to slide in for a snap or two or whatever you need to do, rotate them in. Like it would just make you feel better. And I kind of look at that. Like we definitely don't need to address anything else when it comes to like the defensive line, for instance. I mean, we were talking earlier in the episode real early, you know, hopefully Shaq Lawson makes the team. That's because he, if you look at it like a depth chart right now, he's like your ninth, 10th guy. Like, and that's, <laughs> that's a pretty good depth of Shaq Lawson, you know, Shaq Lawson's nothing special, but he's, a, he's been in the league for a while now. He was obviously former first round pick of our team and he's your ninth or 10th guy. He's your fifth edge, you know, on the depth chart. Like that's a pretty good depth. And then linebackers, we got what we got and we're going to keep rolling with it. I don't see much change in there and I don't think we need to. So, yeah, I mean, the only other thing I think of is corner. But again, it comes back to our wide receiver situation. It's very similar. It's like, I think they're comfortable where it is. I don't think they're going out and I don't expect them to go out and do much with it. But I kind of would love for them to just get one more outside veteran corner just to get me a little warm and fuzzy, knowing that we can withstand some knocks and injuries during the season that will inevitably come. I mean, that's that's the nature of the beast. It's a physical game. It's a long season. It's a grueling season injuries and knocks will come to these players it just happens it, they're not made of you know steel they're not just invincible so that's kind of the only other position i really look at but it's not something ultimately i think they will address unless big things happen in the you know in the preseason or whatever that may cause you know another serious injury say you know cam lewis Let's say in a preseason game, Cam Lewis pulls up and all of a sudden it's like, oh, he's going to be out four to six weeks. It's like, okay, well, now you lost one of those depth pieces. One of the few things you have, you probably need to address it at this point. You know, there's a guy out there that I know you're not going to be overly excited about, but he does check some boxes. He's a veteran. He went to the same school as Kyir Elam. And he can probably be had at this point for a very affordable price. Um, he's been playing golf with Von Miller, Mr. Joe Hayden. And one more box he checks that is at least worth mentioning. Jordan Poyer has not showed up for anything yet. I'm not saying Jordan Poyer is going to hold out and not be a bill, but 
Sometimes these aging cornerbacks that have been really good in their past, but you know, might lose a step. Think about Troy Vincent like this. They transitioned to safety late in their career. What about a situation where you bring in Joe Hayden to be your fourth cornerback, but also kind of low key train him at safety just in case something happens with Jordan Poyer and you have a Super Bowl team. And you don't necessarily want Jaquan Johnson out there playing meaningful snaps when you could have a veteran like Joe Hayden. Just something to kick around. I know you're not the biggest Joe Hayden fan, so I'll, I'll pause and let you respond. I, I don't hate Joe Hayden. I just, he's not ever a corner. I was like, yeah, I want him on my team. I mean, yeah, he right. He went to Florida, and I, I remember when he got drafted, and he got drafted pretty high and went to Cleveland, and he was a good corner at Cleveland, slides over to Pittsburgh, was a pretty dang good corner in Pittsburgh too. He's never anything crazy special. Now, at this point, I'm not looking for anything special, of course, I and mean, we're not looking for that. You're scraping the bottom of the barrel for the reason here. But I just don't see him being very effective at all. The safety point is a great point. I think he's a good football mind. He understands the game very, very well. He understands it at a Pro Bowl level, even though it's at corner. When you have a good enough mind where you understand schemes, offenses, and how they like to do things, if he can read the game that well, Maybe he could do that. Maybe he could transition as a nice piece that could kind of become a hybrid safety and just use him wherever's needed. He's that would become even more of a like break break glass in case need. Like that would be, I would be more okay with that if that was their intention. Mm-hmm. I would definitely be more okay with it. Obviously, we wouldn't know their intention. We don't know where their mindset would be at with it. If you had if you had to tell me like hey we're not going to sign anyone and if we do it's going to be Joe Hayden I'd probably sign on with it I'd be like okay I get it I get all, I get all the things I get I get whatnot both as you brought up I mean I think Von Miller's been trying to recruit him for weeks now or months at this point it just that always comes up um he always goes you know there's a guy I've been talking to there's a veteran out there still blah 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 mm-hmm. um McDermott and Fraser love their veterans uh, they do they do it he's just I don't know, man. Like this isn't Madden, you know, these aren't just, you know, you're getting exactly what you know you should be able to get out of these guys. You have no idea what you're actually going to be able to get and stuff like that. So I, I can't complain too much, but my love of like a Kevin King is still out there and things like that. It's like, uh, I mean, Joe Hayden to me is pretty good, but then you have a guy out there like Jimmy Smith that I don't know how dead he is, but he's the same age and he's kind of like the same corner and I like Jimmy better, but you're grasping at straws here like or i'm grasping at straws here you're gonna take whatever you get if they're comfortable with it if that's the guy they like they're gonna go ahead and do it as long as it doesn't you know do anything crazy to the team ultimately i don't care bringing in one more guy whoever it may be just to sure up that depth and sure up you know the comfortability that is sustaining some injuries during the season I'm okay with, I'm not going to complain just because, Oh, it's Joe Hayden. And I'm not a big fan of his. It's like, no, it's kind of like when they brought in Josh Norman, it's everything else. Like you just bring in one guy and it's just, Hey, they're there just in case you really need them. See what you got in them. If they work out a lot better than you think, that'd be awesome. But you're not real. I mean, it's your fourth corner, your fifth corner, maybe even like you, he's just there to make sure you don't have some crazy drop off all of a sudden because you got like, Tim Harris out there playing corner. Like if we got Tim Harris out there or Trevon Fuller playing corner for us, 
we're probably in for some tough times. Well, hey, people left the Josh Norman signing, and then there was a game against Tennessee where Trey White couldn't play. And if Josh Norman hadn't been out there, who would Derrick Henry have made the famous stiff arm on? <laughs> who would A.J. Brown have caught that touchdown on by just juking him out of his shoes? So there's always room for a Josh Norman. I don't anticipate them doing anything. Maybe they just do decide to sign a vet, but to me, when you look at how it stacks up at the cornerback position, if they do believe Trey Wright is on is on track to be back in time for camp, um, you have, to me, the perfect time to put a rookie in there. I know they don't like to play rookies right off the bat, but you want to talk about having a rookie insulated, much like Deion Dawkins was his rookie year when he got to play next to Ricky, Richie Incognito and Eric Wood, just next to two really, really good vets. You have a rookie cornerback in Elam in a secondary with Trey White, Micah Hyde, Jordan Boyer, Teron Johnson. Like, talk about nurturing a young kid along. And I would see the Bills probably doing a snap split, kind of like they did with Cody Ford and Ty Inseki, Cody Ford's rookie year. Um, you know, just for the development where have a series on the field, couple series, then come off, watch Dane Jackson play for a series or two, see what you did wrong. There's some dual benefit there. You keep Dane Jackson in the game. So if an injury does happen, it's not like he's coming in cold off the bench. His legs are under him. I, McDermott's been doing that with his defensive lineman for years. I think there's some extra, extra strategy there. Um, but that's kind of what I anticipate happening with Cam Lewis kind of being that that last guy when they always have Saran Neal there to come in in a pinch to get them out of a game. No, not any kind of long-term answer, but the cornerback to get them out of a game. I do want to circle back real quick to offensive line because you brought up Quisenberry, and I have the same thought as you because we both said the same thing about Tommy Doyle. I still like what Tommy Doyle could be as a project offensive lineman who is just kind of a ball of clay you can mold. But what the Bills couldn't do was just rely on hoping that he can become that third tackle. And hope is not a plan. We, I still have hope that Tommy Doyle can be a third tackle. I still have memories of Tommy Doyle getting roasted by Shaq Lawson against the Jets. So now what the Bills have done with Quisenberry is they've given themselves a solid floor where if Tommy Doyle can't reach that floor, then Quisenberry comes in as the third tackle. If Tommy Doyle continues to progress and continues to get better, well then, hey, you have Quisenberry on your bench and then Tommy Doyle is ready to go. One more question for you. You mentioned Daryl Williams. Daryl Williams is still a free agent. I know he didn't impress you at right tackle. He got them out of some games last year after he lost that job. But they're one injury away from Cody Ford playing meaningful snaps. If Daryl Williams comes to the Bills and says, hey, I'll sign a one-year, $2 million deal to be your backup guard and can get you out of a game at right tackle if need be. Would you do that? 100%. Oh, yeah. I was fine with him at guard. I mean, he he definitely, when he slid to guard, Spencer Brown stayed at tackle. When that moment happened, I was like, okay, he he definitely fits a lot better there. And if you're telling me that he will come back just to kind of keep it going and he's okay with that pay cut now and it's like okay it is what it is and he would be our depth at guard over botker ford yeah yeah i want i want to see ford out of this organization personally but yeah it is what it is and like you got to deal with it again like i brought up with ford it's like if i'm complaining about a backup guard what am i really doing but now you've just given me the hypothetical situation where i can get rid of my depth guard because of better options there yeah yes always 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 no matter where it is on the roster i am always in favor of improving where you can as long as it's in the benefit of the team to do so 
and it benefits everyone else, you know, in the locker room, we'll call it like, you know, it's, it's kind of the reason where it's like Zach Moss has been around. He's probably comfortable with Singletary. Do I think he's realistically going to get cut? Maybe not. I think he might be now, obviously, because we drafted James Cook and you got Duke Johnson signed and Taiwan Jones is a, you know, probably your fourth running back realistically only because of his special teams prowess. But when you have people that have been in the locker room for now, you know, it's going on their third season. It's hard to cut people like that if everyone likes them being around. So it's that's kind of my argument to like, that's why it's not this isn't mad in here. You're not just, you know, it's or fantasy football or whatever you want to call it. It's you can't just plug and play and cut people. It's like there are emotions involved. There are people. I mean, that's the reason they bring in certain quarterbacks for Josh Allen. You want friendly faces for him. You want him feeling good. It's the reason Matt Barkley's back. It's the reason Matt Barkley's still getting an NFL salary of some variety. Mm-hmm. To that be Josh these, Allen's BFF in the QB room. To be, right. He's literally getting paid to be Josh Allen's friend in the in the quarterback room and in the offensive meetings and everything like that. And there's value to that. It, it's not just an eye roll. It's not just Josh Allen getting it's It's to have Matt Barkley on the sideline as a calming presence when things inevitably go wrong. To be that Davis Webb. So sometimes you don't want to hear from a coach. Sometimes you don't want to hear from your star receiver. Sometimes you need to hear from a friend who can relate because he plays the same position as you, just not the starter. And Davis Webb would pull Josh Allen aside all the time and say, hey, let that go. You made a mistake. There's 10 more drives in this game. You're going to be fine. Matt Barkley can play that role perfectly. And there's value. Look, if Matt Barkley has to play meaningful snaps for this team, do I expect it to go well? Probably not. But if we get down to the Matt Barkley point, what are we doing. I think these conversations are healthy. I think these are the kind of conversations that need to be happening within the walls of one bill's drive. I do think you bring up a good point about Zach Moss. I I started thinking like, man, I I really do think that it's going to come down to one roster spot for either Zach Moss or Duke Johnson, because we know Taiwan Jones is a lock. We know that James Cook is a lock. We obviously know Devin Singletary is a lock. That leaves one spot in my opinion, because obviously Reggie Gilliam is going to make it as the fullback. All we're trying to do is what the Bills should be trying to do, and we're confident they are, is where could this roster break our heart? Where could something happen that we should have accounted for and then we didn't, and all of a sudden you have somebody who's not an NFL caliber player starting, and this team with Super Bowl aspirations ends up breaking our heart. I hope that doesn't happen. We've had plenty of heartbreak in our past, and right now, Luca, we're going to dive into some of that heartache because it's time to play our big three game. And I've been looking forward to this version of the big three since we started this podcast. The very first show we did was favorite Bill's memory. And we talked about all the fun games we had. What a wild ride we had somehow with a 17 year drought. You and I just couldn't come up with enough good moments to talk about. But when you go 17 years without making the playoffs, there are some down times. There are some heartbreaking times. And tonight we have the task of drafting the top three each for us in the big three game of the Bills, big three heartbreakers during the 17-year playoff drought. Luca, tonight it's your turn to ask the trivia question. Let's see what you got. All right. Yep, this is the last one in my cash here, so I'm going to have to type up some more after this. But this one was kind of surprising, so I just kind of locked it up here real quick. In the past 10 seasons, so since the 2011 season, this includes 2011. There have only been two players to finish either tied for the lead or alone in the lead of for sacks on this Bills team that were also drafted by the Bills. 
Can you name those two players? So they led the Bills in sacks, and they were drafted by the Bills. Correct. Correct. And you said, what was the time frame? I'm sorry. From the 2011 season, including that season to now. So in the past 10 seasons. Okay, from 2011 until now. So, okay, so one of the answers was going to be Aaron Schobel. That's obviously not going to be correct. So from 2011, in 2011, they drafted Marcel Darius. That seems like a pretty interesting reason for you to start in 2011. So I'm going to go with Marcel Darius. Okay, that's one. Okay. And okay, who else would have been drafted by the Bills to lead them in sacks? Lorenzo wasn't drafted by the Bills. Jerry Hughes wasn't drafted by the Bills. Kyle Williams was, but he was drafted in 06. So we're going in the think tank here. Definitely not AJ Epinesa. Certainly not Greg Rousseau. Not Boogie Basham. Uh, We're going to Shaq Lawson potentially. Did Shaq Lawson ever lead this team in sacks? Did it ever get that bad where Shaq Lawson led this team in sacks? Let me think about that for a second. Um, nobody in the Watkins draft. Then they didn't have any picks. I think I'm going to have to go with Shaq Lawson. You would be correct. Shaq Lawson was tied for the lead. That's why I had to preface tied uh, in 2017. Yep. Uh, I was trying to get up the sack numbers because I didn't actually write that down for whatever odd reason. Um, but uh, yeah, so 2017, Shaq Lawson was tied for the team lead in sacks. Oh, with Jerry Hughes, four each. That's what it was. There we go. <laughs> I knew it was something okay. pretty bad. <laughs> wow. Yeah, the 27, 2017, the, the sacks were very spread out. Like, um, yeah. So there's one player on this list, by the way, you know, just as a fun one that I honestly, and we know a lot of depth guys here, right? We know a lot of the guys who have come in and out and there have been some crazy names, like even on that team, Ramon Humber or Humber, however it's pronunciated. There was a guy that got a sack for the bills that I genuinely have no recollection of like no joke. It? It was 2017 and he wore number 75. Oh gosh. It is the most obscure name, right? Say it again. Okay. That wouldn't be IK and Impale, right? No, it was not. Right over from the Jets. Okay. No, no, no. I don't know who that is. It was Nordley Cappy. I have no No. idea who that guy is, but he recorded a sack for the Bills in 2017. I think his nickname was Cap. So he was Cap Cappy. I think that was his name. Yeah. Like he's wild too, because his profile picture is him in a Cardinals practice jersey. Um, and he only recorded stats for two teams in the NFL. It was the bills in 2017 and the giants in 2017. That's it. This guy. And the craziest part too is like, I, I, I just don't understand it. Like he literally has a forced fumble in a sack. That was his only thing he did for the bills. I, <laughs> mind blowing. Like it was just weird. So anyways, yes, you got to correct. No more ranting on about Nordley Cappy. Here. Oh, there'll be uh, some ranting going on in these next few minutes because we're going to go right. through some heartbreaking moments. Right, exactly. I'm going to so go first. Oh, okay. I'm going to go first. I feel like this is almost... Now, look, if, if we're talking about draft classes, this is a great draft class. There are a lot of high-end prospects in this draft class. There's You could make a lot of picks with the first pick and get a solid pick. But to me... Even though there's a lot of good picks in this class, this reminds me of like the Peyton Manning class where Randy Moss was in it, Charles Woodson was in it, but Peyton Manning was the generational prospect. 
there's one generational game in, in this one that has to be brought up. I'm going to go back to 2004. Okay, let me paint the picture for you guys. Uh, the Bills had missed the playoffs in 2000, 2001, 2002. They trade for blood, so still miss it. 2003. And then 2004 starts off with a four-game losing streak, which was the Ernest Wilford game week one against Jacksonville. They lose to Oakland, and they lose at home to the Patriots. And then somehow, some way, they lose to the 0-4 Jets in New York. I may have had my Jets mixed up here. I don't think the Jets were 0-4, but they lost a heartbreaker to the Jets in New York. And then they come. I'm not going to go through the whole schedule. That'd be boring, but I want to just paint the picture. They come back and beat the Dolphins, who were also terrible that year, 20-13. to But then they go to Baltimore, and they lose 20-6. to So the Bills are sitting here at 5-1. and or I'm sorry. One in five. The season feels like a waste. The offense can't get out of their own way. Here's the offensive output from the first five games. 10, 10, 17, 14. They do win the game against the Dolphins where they score 20. And then six against the Ravens. And then Lucas, something funny happens. Your Arizona Cardinals come to town. Larry Fitzgerald, rookie Larry Fitzgerald comes to town. And the Bills beat the brakes off of the Cardinals. And you start looking at the schedule and you're like, you know, there's some winnable games on this schedule. If the Bills can just put some things together and boy, did they put some things together after the Cardinals came to town, the Bills would go on to lose one more game until week 17. Of course, it was to the nasty old Patriots, but the Bills crawl back to nine and six, riding a six game winning streak in November and December to get to nine and six to play the 15 and one Pittsburgh Steelers. Why do I mention that the Pittsburgh Steelers are 15 and one? Cause they had everything locked up. They had no motivation to play. And Bill Cowher came out midweek and said, Jerome Bettis, not seeing the field. Ben Roethlisberger, not seeing the field. Backup quarterback, Tommy Maddox. He might play for a few series. Then we're going to go to Brian St. Pierre. The Steelers were in Buffalo. This was basically a preseason get through the game. It doesn't matter game for them. For the Bills, it was everything. They had to win. They were a double digit favorite over a 15 and one team because even the odds makers knew just because the Steelers uniforms were going to be on the field, it wasn't going to be the actual Steelers. Here's the problem. Well, first of all, let me just say the Bills needed some help to get in. They needed the Jets to lose to the Rams. The Jets lost to the Rams. So they got the help they needed. Here's the problem. The backups on the Steelers included guys named James Harrison, Willie Parker. We had no idea these guys were that good. We found out that day they were that good. James Harrison dominated our offensive line. Willie Parker ran for a 70-yard touchdown run. James Harrison, I believe, scored a touchdown on defense. The Bills, with everything to play for against a Steelers team, that would have opted to not show up if the league gave them that option, lost 29-24 to to the third stringers of the Pittsburgh Steelers in Buffalo to see their miracle run season come to an end and extend the playoff drought. To me, there were a lot of heartbreaking moments in the playoff drought. This one has to be number one. That's why I picked it. Yeah, I was at that game. I know we've talked about it before. As a young Buffalonian, um, I was there with my mother. 
uh, I had a lot of interesting home games in that year because obviously, as you also mentioned, my Cardinals in the you know in the youth of me, I showed up in you know I showed up a uh, in a Cardinals attire, and in the middle of the I think where were we 35 yard line bill sideline row like 23 great season tickets right on the aisle and that was an experience but no this game i remember showing up being very confident as a kid thinking i mean we can't lose to basically a borderline practice squad team that's not going to happen as you mentioned we did not know willie parker was a very good nfl running back we didn't know james harrison was an absolute monster of an end we didn't know these things they were just depth players or borderline practice squad guys and I remember showing up though, and there were Steelers terrible towels everywhere. You mentioned it's a home game. Even being at that game, I still remember it. Even being at that game, it didn't even feel like a home game at times. There were that many terrible towels. Obviously, Pittsburgh is not very far away. They were a very good team that year. It was just a weird, weird feeling when it all ended and everything happened the way it did. And <laughs> next thing you know, we lost to a bunch of bench players and uh, did not make the playoffs. I, I think. Did you mention? I sorry. I was trying to look up something while you were talking. Did you mention like how we needed some things to go our way? Like I believe we, that was the case there. Yeah, we needed either the Colts backups who also had nothing to play for to beat the Broncos. That did not happen. But we also needed, or we needed the Jets to lose to the Rams, and that did happen. Yeah. Yeah, so it was just a it was a weird feeling. Like I, I remember hanging my head on that and just going, ah, it just wouldn't have worked out. But it's just what a weird, weird time that game was. Great pick. I mean, it was going to be my first pick too. It was the first thing. Like when when we came up with this idea, I know you and I have both talked. Like that's that's the pinnacle. That's the crown jewel of this. You know, what we didn't realize was the beginning or the starting bookend to the drought. Like even though obviously it's not the start of the drought, truthfully. I feel like that's the moment when you really like, if you look back, you go, that's when it really went to shit. That's when everything just went horribly, horribly wrong. I feel like that's that moment. You can kind of look at those years from, you know, the, the music city miracle to that point going, you still felt okay about the team. It sucked missing out, but you really didn't realize what you were in. Once that game happened, I feel like there was no positive outlook. There was nothing positive. You, You didn't, you didn't know what was going to be happening, but nothing felt great. It was uh, it was a bad time. So great pick. Um, yeah, I think that's a great point because it's a 17-year drop, but it wasn't a drop for the full 17 years. The first few years, it's just, hey, we haven't made the playoffs in a couple of years. If the Bills missed the playoffs in 2022, they're not going to be in a one-year playoff drought. It won't feel like a drought unless they go four or five years. I think that was like to your point. The drought started with the Music City Miracle. But to me, the drop became official that day in Orchard Park when they lost to the Steelers. And it was like, well, now we're in year number five. Exactly. Yeah, no, that's when it really started hitting home. Okay. Well, since I can't use that as my first pick, because you brilliantly use that as your first pick, I won't be salty about it at all here. Um, I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to go back to 2007 here. Um, I feel like you already kind of know where I'm going. and. The Bills finally got to host a Monday night football game and they welcomed in the Dallas Cowboys. And I remember the vibe and the feeling around the city just being so electric. I I actually, as a kid, was in the main lots 
Didn't have a ticket, nothing of that source, but I wanted to be around it. It was different, right? I mean, for me, that was that was the first time we were ever on Monday Night Football, real, realistically. I mean, I don't actually remember the Bills being on Monday Night Football much ever. I mean, I, I believe like there may have been one in there somewhere, but I this was a this was a different feeling for me. And of course, as everyone remembers, you know, the game starts with essentially it was it started out back and forth a little bit, and then Romo throws that pick six to George Wilson, and that's when you're like, okay, this is cool. Ends the first quarter basically it's seven nothing. Um, I want to say we had a halftime lead of 17-10 and things were okay. Nothing seemed chaotic, whatever, right? And then McGee, as much as I love him, man, he gets that kick return for a touchdown. And I think that was the moment where I was like, we're going to win this game. And it was, I remember someone had a TV and that was the one year that it was, what was it? Ron Jaworski, uh, Tony Kornheiser, and uh, who's the, who was the third guy? I'm trying to think who the third guy was on the broadcast. I can't think of it. Anyways, someone had the TV on and those were the commentators and it was, it was a weird commentator booth. I'll be honest. And might I didn't know Mike how Patrick. I don't remember though. <sighs> it might've been, I can't remember you you nailed the two color guys. I can't remember who the, the yeah. play by play guy And was. I remember Jaworski naturally was kind of being a bit of a Homer, not over the top or anything, but he was being a little bit of a Homer. And then Kornheiser just has this thing against the bills. I feel like I, I, I remember being very negative, but then the fourth quarter happens. <laughs> the fucking fourth quarter happens. And it was, <sighs> I don't even know how to describe it. Like they kicked a field goal. I remember super early on and then it just kind of like was back and forth and the game was going nowhere and almost in a way like when a game is close and then all of a sudden it's kind of like stalling out, you get nervous and you're like, something's going to happen. Something's going to happen. Something's going to happen. And then what was it in the last minute entirely? Basically they go down. It was oh, I'm trying to think of his name. Patrick Creighton. Was that it? Like Patrick Creighton caught yeah. the touchdown. And they got a two point conversion and then they, they get the, they, if I remember correctly too, no timeouts, they get the ball back and then they rush a field goal unit out there and get the, the winner is, is memory serving me right here is like a 50. I, I wish I did notes here. I really did. Cause my memory. So here, let, let me, let me help you out here because yeah. this was going to be my <laughs> second pick Yeah, to paint a picture for how depressing this was. The bills had an eight point lead with. 20 seconds to go and lost the game in regulation. So Patrick Creighton scores a touchdown that Luke is talking about here. They go for two and they miss and you're thinking, Oh, we dodged the bullet, but onsides kick Cowboys recover. Oh no. But Hey guys, we're still doing okay. We're still okay. They don't have any timeouts. All you can't let them do is catch a pass on the sideline and get out of bounds. (laughs) Terrell Owens, the one guy on the team you might want to guard on the outside on the Cowboys, catches the pass and gets out of bounds. And they're in field goal range, and I'll let you take it from there. Yeah, no, it, right. It was third, and I just pulled it back up. Yeah, third and six. The game's on the line. You might want to bracket Terrell Owens, right? <laughs> no, we let him open, no problem. <laughs> you just, how you doing? Here's a, here's a nice quick out for you. Congratulations. They, you know, they get the field goal unit out there and just Nick Folk bangs in a 53 yarder. And and I remember it not being even an easy kicking game. I, I want to say it was kind of when he, it wasn't like over the top or anything like we really know that it can be, 
Um, but I remember it not being a given, especially if you have 53 yards and he just drills it and like the Cowboys sidelines going nuts in the parking lot. So again, I mentioned I was in the parking lot. This is why it's number one. This is the moment. It was the quietest be- before all the fans actually got out. It was the quietest I have ever heard it. People were turning off their little portable generators and TVs. It was silence. It was the weird in my area, at least I've heard all of their stories that were quite different, you know, <laughs> whatever it might've gone down. But I remember it just being eerie and just the sadness and just sulking until the fans were coming out. And then it's just the typical, you know, you have the over the top drunks that are just screaming profanities and whatever else and stuff. It was just a weird vibe. And I get home and my, my parents who had watched understandably, they like my dad's still up because he was waiting until I got home and he's like, you know, you're still going to school tomorrow, but how was it? And I was like, honestly, really wish I didn't waste my time. <laughs> Even though it was a lot of fun, the hype was great and all that kind of stuff. That was such a disappointing ending to a game and everything that transpired. As you put it, yes, it was right. 20 seconds. You have an eight point lead with 20 seconds and you can't win in like you, you can't even force overtime. <laughs> like it just, ugh. it's, it's one of the most heartbreaking moments I can remember. If it wasn't for that Steelers game you brought up, this is definitely what would be the number one. As you said, I guess you would even have probably done that same thing because this would have been your second pick. I mean, just a brutal moment for Bills fans everywhere. So a couple things. Nick Folk's first field goal went through, but Dick Duran, in one of his rare good coaching moments, did the perfectly timed timeout where the kick's up and it's good and the Cowboys run on the field to celebrate. And the refs are like, no, 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 no. There was a timeout on the field. And you're like, oh my God, Dick Jaron saved us. And then he bangs it through again. Um, second thing, I think the context of that game was, I mentioned the 04 Steelers. It was, hey, we're not really in a drought yet, but now we're in a drought. By 2007, this was a full-fledged drought. Um, the first couple games, it became painfully obvious that JP Lossman was not the answer. And that's depressing. It's always depressing when you get a final answer on a first round quarterback because it kind of crushes any hope you have. And then you're wondering what's next. But the Bills did spend a third round pick on Trent Edwards, who by some experts had a first round grade. And he had come out the game before and beat the Jets to get the Bills only win on the year. They were one and three. And Ron Jaworski in the pregame was going on about how this was the best rookie performance he had seen since Tom Brady. Like you said, Jaws was being quite the homer that game. Um, And then... This was such a special moment because the Bills were hosting a primetime game for the first time since, I believe, the first time since the Music City Miracle Revenge game to kick off the 2000 season. Um, They did have some road primetime games along the way before that, but Monday night in Buffalo did not happen to these Bills. It was a scene and you know, this isn't, this isn't today's bills where you're used to the bills being the topic of conversation. You're used to cameras being careful. I mean, caring about what's going on in Buffalo. It felt like the world was looking at you and it felt really cool to be noticed. I remember coming home. Um, so I would have been in college. So, um, I remember taking off work that night so I could watch the game, obviously, and just taking in all the pregame, like, Oh my God, Pardon the interruption is going to predict a Bills score tonight. That's super duper cool. And, you know, 
and as it's going on and you're just like, man, and they're playing the Cowboys who are always a big deal. And Luca hit all the high points. It was painfully obvious who the better team was. I mean, the only reason the bills were even in the game is Romo was throwing up all over himself. The Cowboys turned the ball over on almost every one of their first half possessions and they still managed to win the game. That should tell you which team was better, but it just felt like, why can't we have this? We know this isn't a very good team. We know that this team's not going anywhere. Can we just have this moment? Can we have some belief, something to be happy about? But no, the team that crushed our hopes twice in the 90s and win the Super Bowl gets to come make us the NFL laughing stock again. And the worst thing is, it's like the Cowboys win a game. We all would have loved to win it. And all they're saying is, man, we played like crap tonight. And we still managed to win. Luca, one thing I guarantee you did not remember about this game. I did not remember it until seeing it. Did you know after this game, the Bills went on a four game winning streak? <laughs> no, I don't remember that at all. <laughs> I would not have remembered that. And then the loss was 56 to 10 to New England. <laughs> the game Classic. that got flexed into Sunday night football. Hey, we're yep. back on prime time. Oh my God. <laughs> Good pick. <laughs> Classic. Yeah. No. All right. Moving on. We don't need to talk about that. Let's not. Let's go ahead and talk about another Monday night football game, shall we? Because my next pick is definitely going to be. The following year, the Bills went right back to Monday Night Football, and they got to host not the Dallas Cowboys. No, no, no. Kind of what seems to be the opposite in another suckful loser like us, the Cleveland Browns. And the moment I will get to eventually, but we can talk about the game. I mean, it's the Browns and the Bills. Uh, I think at this point going into this game, we were 5-4. and four. Uh, The Browns were uh, a little bit worse than us. I want to say 3-6 and six or so. Um, but... I remember it kind of being just the first half was kind of boring. If, if memory serves me right, I remember nothing special. Like Brady Quinn was, you know, the quarterback for them. Trent Edwards quarterback for us. And you kind of get exactly what you expect out of that game. It was nothing special. Nothing crazy was happening. I want to say like the only touchdown for the Browns. Yeah. I'm, I'm looking at it now. Finally here, Josh Cribs got a touchdown, you know, for them. Uh, I believe Edwards hit. Uh, it was, I want to say it was just a quick little, dump you know dump out to lynch who ran it in for a touchdown nothing crazy halftime 13 10 even in the third quarter traded field goal 16 13 but the fourth quarter got wild first play of the fourth quarter jerome harrison just boom out of a gun just hit 72 yards for a touchdown literally the ensuing kickoff (laughs) leotis mckelvin runs the the kick back for a touchdown and you're like okay this game's picking up. Everything's going to be crazy. Browns go down on another drive, kick a field goal, and then it kind of stalled out from there. And you're just like, I mean, can we do something? Can Trent Edwards do something? And I, they led a long drive. I want to say it was a long drive. I want to confirm this off the top of my head. I remember it being a nice drive. No, no, no. Okay, sorry. I was thinking of some a different game entirely. Um, I'm thinking of a bad game also. But <laughs> so anyways, uh, they had a drive. They go up. They score, yes, exactly. Okay, I do remember this correctly. They score a touchdown with what I believe was like just over two minutes left, and you're like, okay, this Brady Quinn team, other than a Jerome Harrison run, has not been able to do much of anything on offense entirely. Like They haven't been explosive. So as long as we just keep everything together, we'll be fine. Nope. We go ahead and screw everything up. We uh, just They basically get a quick quick little drive in there. They kick the ensuing, uh, they go ahead field goal. Everything's great, but we get the ball back with like a minute left. Maybe it was a minute and a half left. We drive down, we get into field goal range and we somehow screw it up. 
and it wasn't that long. I want to say it was 47 yards. <laughs> and this is getting to the moment here, because if memory serves me right, 47 yards going wide right has a long history for the Bills. And mm. not only does the moment happen, but they have the audacity. And this is really what hits me. And this is honestly the only thing I remember from the game. I, it's kind of, I feel like this is the mental block that is that game. This is why I had to look at the notes to make sure I was getting some of the moments right. Because the only thing I truthfully remember is them replaying it going wide right. And you just hear the commentator softly go and it goes wide right. And every Bills fan out there knows exactly how hard that hurts. And it's like, why in the world do you think it is the right place in fucking time to just drop that hammer and just keep replaying a game losing miss from 47 yards wide right, just emphasizing exactly what just happened. We all understand what happened. I'm, I wasn't even born when the actual moment that is a 47 yarder going wide right happened. And I still feel the pain because you are brought up in it. It is ingrained in you from a little kid that that is the epitome. I mean, that is, of course, of all things, the staple that is being a Bills fan and the unfortunate failures that come with even the successes of the 90s Bills. And that is the moment. So for them to have the balls to just keep dropping that on air and even sports coverage afterwards, keep mentioning mm -hmm. it and keep talking about it. It was all over. Like, obviously, ESPN was Monday Night Football. They're going to talk about their own product. But I want to say they ran with that all the way through to the weekend. Like they kept talking about that moment or at least dropping it like, oh, the Bills had lost, unfortunately, due to a wide right field goal or things like that. And it was just like it got pounded away. And I want to say at that point on, because, yeah, I was right. The Bills then go on to be five and five and the season just went in a downward spiral from there. And uh, it was just. All I remember is just the announcer talking about 47 yards going wide, right? And it's just nonstop over and over. You got to watch it all week. And it's just, again, like I said, I'm pretty sure it's blocked out of my mind the entire game that is that game because I even totally forgot, although now I do remember looking at it, that Trent Edwards had the balls to throw three picks in the first. Oh, I was going to bring that up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I totally like I now remember that like just going Jesus mm -hmm. Christ this game sucks. <laughs> like I remember that now. But again, all I remember truthfully going into this and the moment that is what fulfills this is just 47 yards wide right and the ESPN commentators just replaying it in our ears and in our faces and it was just it hurt. It was it was that one honestly hurt more than the Cowboys Monday night game. You expected to lose to the Cowboys. The Cowboys were undefeated at that point. This was I mean, we should have won this game. I mean, it, you would hope we'd win this game. The team was nothing special, but neither were the Browns and to lose in the capacity that we did and just have the game that we did. Just an up and down roller coaster, or down and up roller coaster, if you want to put it that way, and just ended with the ultimate spike down to the ground of reality. And that is why this in the 2008 Monday night football loss to the Browns is my second pick. If you were going to draft heartbreaking bills teams, the 2008 bills would be right up with the 2004 bills. In my opinion, the context of this is the bills started off four and that year. And for at least the first month of the season, there was talk of like, Hey, is this young quarterback Trent Edwards going to be the next great quarterback in football? Is he in the MVP conversation? Then he gets knocked out of the Arizona game, but comes back after the bye and beats a loaded San Diego Chargers team to get the Bills to five and one. And you're starting to believe. 
And this is the year Brady got knocked out. So there was no New England Patriots roadblock in our way. And after that game against the Chargers, there were three AFC East games coming up. And you just thought, if they take care of business here, this playoff drought is going to be a thing of the past. And they did the direct opposite of take care of business. They lost all three of those AFC East games to fall to five and four. But you still knew to yourself, Dolphins are average. Jets are average. Patriots don't have Brady. So all we have to do is just find a way to turn this around. And we have a very easy opponent in the Cleveland Browns coming to town. And hey, the league threw us a bone. We had a Monday night game last year against Dallas. Yes, the Bills were terrible, but the league saw how hyped these fans were, what the atmosphere was like, and they want to put Buffalo back under the spotlight. And this is a get right moment. There's no way we're going to lose to the Browns. And this is where Trentative Edwards was born because he did not throw a lot of picks. That was that was one of his strong suits is he took care of the ball, made good reads. But then what happened here was first drive of the game, pick. Three of his first four drives, pick, pick, pick. And then it was he would not take a shot the rest of the game, the rest of the season, or the rest of his career. And I remember listening to WGR after the game and Paul Hamilton just screaming. He's like, he had receivers wide open down the field and he's dumping it down to Marshawn Lynch. And, you know, Paul Hamilton is a hockey guy. Like he doesn't really care what, I mean, he's, he's a reporter. So for him to be that emotional about it, you knew it had to be bad. Um, this is a great pick. I thought this was a sneaky good pick. Um, I, I wasn't, it wasn't in my top three. I didn't know if I'd have to take it in the top three, but it was one of those that I was kind of hoping you'd forget about because I will tell you, I used to watch the, so I used, I, I live in the Midwest, so I get NFL Sunday ticket. And for, in my college years, I split the cost with my brother-in-law and my sister who are Colts fans. So they're both out of market teams, the bills and the Colts. We'd split the cost. We'd watch the games at their house. Um, so I just got in the habit of just watching football with them. So with the bills being on Monday night, they didn't, you know, I went over there to hang out with them. My nephew was there. So it was a lot of fun. I remember this vividly when the kick goes wide, right? I didn't say anything. I just stood up, grabbed my coat and walked out the door. It wasn't their fault. And I remember my sister just kind of following me to the door. And as I walked out, she just looked at me and goes, sorry. And that was, I mean, I just remember, and I, I felt very rude. Like I shouldn't have done that. It wasn't their fault, but it was like this season that started off with so much promise just died. And then they end up going to Kansas city the next week and pounding the chiefs 54 to 31 before losing four out of their next five. What a disaster. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, it's my, you know, go you're ahead. good. Sorry. I didn't mean to cut in there. It's it just the, quick. No, I mean, I think how you just wrapped that up in the moment that unfortunately you had is exactly how I think everyone had. And it was just, yeah, mm-hmm. as the 2008 season as a whole, that was the moment we all realized what was about to happen. That was it. That was when we were just like, <laughs> I think the fun train's over here. I think we're, uh, we're going to get slammed back down to earth. And unfortunately we were. So, um, the- yeah, I didn't mean to step on you there. No, I you're think, good. Uh, we'll, 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 uh, let you get to your second pick. And I think this is one of the differences between you being a fan that lives in Buffalo and me being a fan that lives in the Midwest. In times like this, you could have gone out after the game and just gone to the gas station, right? Get yourself a soda or whatever, just kind of like cheer yourself up. You're probably going to run into two, three, four people that are feeling the exact same way. Like they're mad Bills fans and you guys just kind of get in there and you don't even know them, but you both just kind of share a look where you shake your head in disbelief and you kind of have that moment where you're like, I know, man, I feel your pain. As a guy in the Midwest, I just felt so alone. 
Like I would be just completely heartbroken. And then I'd go to the gas station. There'd be three people in there saying like, Hey, the blues beat the wild tonight. It's like fantastic. Fantastic. Speaking of the blues real quick, I got to tell you this story from this past weekend. I took my kids to the splash pad. And when I, when I go out, I wear a hat on my head to not get my head sunburnt. And I do not wear any of my bills hats because I don't want to get them wet. So I have this old St. Louis blues hat. I am so conditioned to wearing bills gear that anytime somebody makes a remark about sporting teams or anything, I just assume they're talking about the bills. Cause I like my work badge has a bills logo on it. I always have bills some somewhere on me at all times. And I was at the splash pad and this guy looks at, looks at my hat and I'm like, Oh, he sees my hat. So he's going to say something. He's like, man, what a bad five seconds, five seconds. Oh, he goes five <laughs> seconds away. And I'm just thinking, okay, you know, whatever he's, he, he's not a big Bills fan, so he, he's he got the 13 seconds mixed up. So I'm like, yeah, I still I couldn't believe they couldn't stop him. And he's like, yeah, when I saw the puck go in the net, I just I, I turned my TV off and I was like, oh, shit, he's talking about the Blues who lost <laughs> in game six and lost the series to Colorado with five seconds to go. And I did not admit to him that I thought he meant the Bills 13 seconds. But uh, yeah, it's apparently I'm a, uh, a Blues fan. Um, I'm not. Not, I root for the Blues, I root for the Sabres, but I don't watch a ton of hockey. Um, all right. Coming off of the 2008 season, there was a lot of us questioning everything. Dick Duran somehow randomly got a contract extension, and the season that Luca just outlined went horribly wrong. The Bills needed a spark, and they went out and signed Terrell Owens to be their wide receiver. And I remember driving to work that day when I heard John Clayton and RIP John Clayton, what a legend. Um, him announce on ESPN on Saturday that um, the bills had signed him. And I was in such a good mood. I was delivering pizzas at the time and I didn't care if I got stiff that night. I was like, the bills have Terrell Owens. We matter again. And that 2009 bills team, I didn't know how good they were going to be but I, I knew for sure we had a player that other teams had heard of. And it was like other fan bases had heard of. That's how low it had gotten. Like, do you know any players in our team? Now you do, because we have Terrell Owens. And the Bills opened up that 2009 season in New England. And they were on Monday Night Football because they have Terrell Owens, all eyes on the Bills. The Bills are getting a spotlight game right off the bat. And why shouldn't they? Sure, they're going to lose to New England, but hey, we're in the spotlight. But a funny thing happened that game, Luca. The Bills came out, scored a touchdown on their very first drive, Sean Nelson touchdown. And you're thinking, huh, maybe they're going to put up a little bit of a fight. So the first half goes on and halftime, the Bills are up 14 to 10. You're thinking, huh, okay, though, well, they're going to set us up for a little heartbreaker here, but oh, you know, whatever they, you know, it's been, it's been fun. I, I was bracing. I saw 56 to 10 a couple years ago. I'm, I'm cool right now. This is good. Third quarter, the Bills score three, the Patriots score zero, and your eyebrow goes up a little bit more, and you're thinking, huh, okay. Well, now the Bills, let me get the score right. They have a um a 17 to 13 lead. I'm sorry, a 17 to 10 lead. Patriots tech on a Goskowski field goal to start the start the fourth quarter. You're like, okay, well, here we go. But with five minutes left, the Bills are driving down. You're just bracing for that interception or sack fumble. Trent Edwards throws a pass to the flat to Fred Jackson. Fred Jackson makes three Patriots miss and scores a touchdown. And I did not believe what I had seen. The Bills took a two-score lead with five and a half minutes to go. I'm getting texts from buddies that aren't Bills fans, but they just know how invested I am saying, game, set, match. Oh my God, they did it. They're going to beat New England. And I'm just, I'm, I'm trying not to believe it, but man, 
I, at that point, was super duper confident. So the Patriots get the ball back. And, you know, we're all honest with ourselves. We know Brady's going to go down and get a touchdown. We get it. Like, but he's got to score two to make it matter. He's got to score two. He's going to get one, but let's just make sure he has to take some time off the clock. The Patriots scored a touchdown to Ben Watson with two minutes and six seconds left. And you're thinking, okay, well, that was bad, but we'll get the ball. The kickoff return will take it down to the two-minute warning. There's one timeout. And then, you know, the, the Patriots have to start burning their timeouts. And then, you know, we're good to go. So the kickoff comes, Leotis McKelvin catches it in the end zone. You're thinking, take it out, dude, take it out. We want to burn some clock. Perfect. Perfect. You know, there's been other situations in Bill's history where, you know, kickoff return didn't burn clock and it came back to bite us. Won't talk about that tonight, but, uh, Leotis McKelvin takes it out and Leotis McKelvin at this point in time was one of, if not the best kick returners in the entire league, takes the ball out of the end zone. He's running and you're, you're just watching the clock. You're not even really watching McKelvin at this point. Cause you're not expecting him to score. If he scores, it's a bonus. You're just watching the clock. And then all of a sudden you're watching the clock and you hear a really loud roar from the crowd. What what's happening. And all the Patriots on the field are celebrating. Leotis McKelvin fumbled the ball and the Patriots pick it up. And now they have the ball with two minutes to go. And all they need is five points to tie six points, to take the lead. And Tom Brady throws a touchdown pass to Ben Watson with 50 seconds remaining. They do miss the two point conversion. So I guess we have that going for us, but what an unbelievable heartbreaker, but the bills got the ball back with 50 seconds left down by one. That should be a situation that if you're a fan of a team, you feel like you have a chance to do well in. Well, if you're a fan of the bills and those bills, you knew it was over. And guess what? It was we did nothing. Trent Edwards threw like a 10 yard pass to Terrell Owens to start the drive off. You're thinking, Hmm, maybe they're going to do something. Nope. They didn't do anything. I want to say Edwards actually fumbled it in the game. Patriots win 25 to 24. Brady gives the whole, we got to play better than that. If we're going to do anything this year. And the bills fans were robbed of what would have been one of the greatest victories of our lifetimes. If you weren't old enough to remember the nineties bills, the Patriots had tormented us for years. They were the king. They were already a dynasty. And we were about to start the season off with a win on their field on national TV in front of their fans. And instead, it just became another laughable moment for the Bills as they lose. And the rest of the world says, man, the Patriots are amazing. They always find a way. Makes you want to throw up. I actually called in to show up in Bulldog that night. I don't do this very often, but I called in on post game because I had to make a point. Because people were calling up saying, is, should Dick Duran have told Leotis McKelvin not to fumble, not to fumble? And, you know, some people were like, no, you don't have to tell a player not to fumble. I had just watched the America's game, the documentary of the 2005 Steelers, and they had Bill Cowher mic'd up during the Super Bowl. And this is Jerome Bettis's last game. And before the last drive, Bill Cowher goes up to him and says, hey, I don't care if you gain a single yard. I just need you to hold on to the ball. And I was so fired up and it sounds so stupid now because why would you have to tell a pro athlete not to fumble? But I was like, if Bill Cower felt like he had to go tell Jerome Bettis, who's going to go to the hall of fame, not to fumble. I dare somebody to tell me why Dick Duran doesn't tell Leos McKelvin not to fumble. And like Chopin and Bulldog both loved that point. And they kept saying, good job, good job. And then like the next day on Howard Simon, Bulldog called in and retold the story that I told. And I was like, man, I really made a mark here. But I did not get over that game for a while. I honestly don't know, Luca, if I'm still over that game. I don't know if I could watch it back if it was on. That's how much it stung, and that's why it's my second pick. Yeah, no, big heartbreaker. The McAllen fumble. Um, 
I remember uh, myself and my bud, Callan, um, we went into school the next day. And I remember going in and just telling people, I'm like, this is why you draft Dominique Rogers Camardi over Leotis McKelvin. Oh, no. <laughs> I was, that was how I was trying to get over the pain. That was what actually had happened. <laughs> so I was like using that dig at people. And I can, if you can only imagine it didn't go well with, I wasn't doing that to friends. I was just doing that to like people. If they brought it up, yeah, I would just be like, yeah, like F you, like this is why you should do that. But um, yeah, no, it's it, a brutal moment. As you put it, like it was supposed to be this achievement. It's like, holy crap on the stage, you know, and it was a big show because that was the AFL uh, anniversary, right? And that was why we were in that situation. Right. It was awesome. Yeah. The Patriots in our special AFL uniforms. It was awesome. By the way, those AFL whites, so clean. Love those uniforms. Very. Um, yeah. And um, so it was supposed to be everything. And it's just like, you just can't fuck it up. And in classic, classic fashion, as you even said, even once the touchdown goes in, it's like, hey, you should have a chance still with 50 seconds. It's like, no, 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 no. Not this team, not this organization. It's it's over. Mm. Like the fumble happened and it was over. It was it, it. You even said like, oh, can't screw it up and things like that. I remember the first Ben Watson touchdown and honestly already being like, we're going to screw this up. I thought it was going to mm. be like a Trent Edwards pick or something. But like, I mean, yeah, what it was was what it was. And it was just like, yeah, no sadness. Um, Great pick. <laughs> It's it's weird saying great pick to all this, by the way. Yeah, I know. Very very weird. It, it's a, it's like horrible pick. That's why it's a good pick. But um, yeah. The feeling uh, I had, I, the feeling I had at the end of that game was eerily similar to the feeling I had before thirteen seconds, where everything in your brain tells you the game mm-hmm. isn't over, but you're just like, there's no way they screw this up. And no, I so that was actually so like between like so my picks and then that happens i remember being like for a while there with knowing our teams were going to suck every year when schedule would come out and how excited we were this year for everything i remember being like please for the love of god do not put us on monday night football mm-hmm. i remember thinking it was a curse i'm like do not whatever you do put us on monday night football it's a disaster never ever put us on that time slot and I mean, for a while we weren't really on it. So thank God for that. But um, I had yeah, such a I, defeat, I, I had such a defeatist attitude with the schedule where I used to hope to have New England week seventeen, hoping that we'd catch them when they had nothing to play for. So like here I am in April thinking, okay, let's let's play the <laughs> Patriots when they already have the division sewn up. Like there's my attitude. Maybe they won't care enough to try to beat us. Brutal. All right, time for my third pick. It's not going to be on the level of my first two where I had the 04 game against the Steelers and then the McKelvin game. But man, I'm telling you, watching this game, I was upset. It was a roller coaster of emotions. And I'm going to go to the 2015 Bills. And this is Rex Ryan's first year. And I will tell you, Luca, of the Rex Ryan first year, there are some good games to choose from. There's the trying to ba- break the Guinness Book of World Records sound game against New England where we're 1-0 and after the Colts game and we're like, we're finally going to beat New England. We have Rex Ryan. We have a real quarterback. We have an offense. Nope. Can't stop a nosebleed. Um, there was the game in Kansas City where the season was somewhat on the line and Tyrod Taylor comes out and throws three first half touchdowns and then nope, can't stop anything. There was Shady's revenge game in Philadelphia where it was like Shady was talking shit to Chip Kelly and the Bills came out looking good to start the game and then Nope, not going to win, but that's not where I'm going. That's not where I'm going with any of these. 
I'm going to go to week number seven. And here's what happened leading up to week seven. The Bills started off two and two, but it was a very impressive two and two. They dominated the Colts, who were a playoff team. They went to Miami and just blew the doors off the Dolphins. And then they lost a random game to the Giants at home where you're thinking, man, that's kind of weird. Like, does this Rex Ryan going to be like a roller coaster ride? Then they go to Tennessee and beat a good Titans team 14 to 13. And you're thinking, okay, this team can win the tough games. They have a quarterback who's a playmaker and they have a Rex Ryan defense with stars on defense. Kyle Williams, Marcel Darius, Stefan Gilmore, Mario Williams. Like there's enough here. Jerry Hughes, they should be able to do some damage here. But the problem with that Tennessee game is Tyrod Taylor got injured that game and he was going to miss the next two games. So they come home. EJ Manuel starts against the Bengals, but EJ Manuel goes full EJ Manuel and loses that game. Then they go to London and they're taking on the Jacksonville Jaguars. When Tyrod Taylor goes down, you're thinking, okay, I just need EJ to get us one of these two wins. We probably are not going to beat the Bengals. The Bengals were in this phase now where they had Andy Dalton. They're going to the playoffs every year. Their top three receivers were Sanu and AJ Green and uh, Marvin Jones. I mean, and Tyler Eifert, they had weapons everywhere and the Bills weren't going to beat them with a backup quarterback. It just wasn't going to happen. But Jacksonville, that's a different story. They had, I want to say rookie Blake Bortles or maybe no second year Blake Bortles. Um, They had some good players. They had TJ Yeldon, Allen Robinson, Allen Hearns, but defensively they were a train wreck. The Bills went into this game without Tyrod Taylor without Robert, without um, Sammy Watkins and without Robert Woods, if I remember correctly. And they, so they were at one point we're starting Chris Hogan and Marcus Easley at wide receiver. And I'm not as confident that Woods was out. I know for sure Watkins was out and the game could not start off any worse for the bills. EJ Manuel comes out, throws a pick six, has a fumble six. I think our old friend, Paul Puzlesny had his hands in on a couple of those and I'll pull the box score up now here. And the Bills were down at halftime 27 to 13. The Jaguars scored 27 points in the second quarter. And you're just thinking, well, the Bills aren't going to win this game. Whatever. This is an embarrassment. They should have won this game. And it's that 930 slot in the morning where it's the only game on. And you're just watching your team get boat raced by an awful two and five Jaguars team. Third quarter goes by. Nobody scores anything. And then in the fourth quarter, something weird happens. EJ Manuel throws a touchdown bomb to Marcus Easley. And you're thinking, okay, well now they're within an eyelash. And then the next drive, Blake Bortles comes out interception. Corey Graham returns it all the way for the touchdown. The play started. I was fully clothed. The play ended. I don't even remember this happening. My shirt was on the ground. My hat was on the ground. I'm jumping on couches because I'm thinking, oh my God, they are going to win. Obviously, I didn't care so much about being a two and five Jaguars team, but the way this team started with the amount of talent they had on defense and how they looked competent on offense, I really believe this team could have been a playoff team. They just had to make sure not to screw it up when Taylor was out. And it's like, okay, they just had it. This was almost our Monday night game where where Dallas had so many Romo interceptions, but they still overcame it because they were the better team. This was almost our Romo moment where, okay, Jacksonville, they're not nearly as good as us. We have all these turnovers, but we're going to overcome it. We're the better team. And oh my God, this never happens to us. We're going to steal a game. We shouldn't have won. Our defense is on the field against Blake Bortles. And all they have to do is stop him from getting to the end zone. And what does Blake Bortles do? He gets to the end zone. 
Alan Hearns for a touchdown. There was a very, very ticky-tack pass interference call on Nikel Roby Coleman that extended the game that was a fourth down that would have turned the ball over for the Bills. E.J. Manuel comes out with a chance to down by three, make a drive very similar to Trent Edwards against the Patriots, does nothing. I believe his fourth down pass actually went out of bounds. Thanks for that, E.J., at least you didn't get an interception. And the Bills lose 34-31 to to Jacksonville. And for me, this was particularly heartbreaking because I really, in my heart, still believe that that is one of the most talented Bills teams of the entire drought. Doug Whaley had built a really good roster, and Rex Ryan just had no idea how to manage it. Robert Woods had nine catches for 84 yards in that game, so he was healthy. It was Sammy Watkins and Marquise Goodwin who were um, out for the game. And yeah, the Bills lose to the Jaguars. And we've had some disappointing losses to the Jaguars in our Bills history. Not as disappointing as a playoff loss, but pretty, pretty disappointing for me. And that's why it's my third pick. That's a sneaky good one. Just like just like you said about my Browns one, that's a sneaky good one. That's, you know, I wasn't thinking about that. I hadn't written that down. Uh, but yeah, like as you put it, like it was kind of like a roller coaster and like it really is, it was awful. Um, I don't wake up for London games. And the reason I don't wake up for London games is this game. <laughs> I don't do it. Did you wake up I, for this one? I did. Yeah. This was the last I had the guys over. Like as as we all know now, I mean the guys come over every Sunday. I think I had them over for this. So like it was a long day at the house. Oh. And the way this game played out made it so awful. I didn't even it want was, to watch football the rest of the day. It, yeah, it we, ruined we football still, Sunday. We still muscled through it. I feel like the Cardinals had a really shitty game that day too. So like I remember it being a really bad day of football. When you lose on Thursday night football, at least there's like those couple days to kind of get over it. And then by Sunday, you're ready to enjoy your football. When you lose on the London 930 game, you're just, no, I don't want to No, I'm, I'm so mad. I want to just like sit yeah, here. The wound is still open. Yeah. The wound is still open. It, you haven't even been able to get the medical supplies out to try to patch it mm-hmm. up. It's, it's, it's brutal. No, that's, that's a pretty good pick. And, it, and you painted a beautiful picture out of it as best as you could with such an awful game in an awful situation, but yeah, no, uh, very good pick. Very, very good pick. I, uh, I like that one a lot, actually. All right. Let's see who your final pick is. Mr. Irrelevant, if you will. Yeah. Um, there were, there were a couple of games that came to mind or a couple moments, obviously, as we're talking here that came to mind. Um, like I, there was a Titans bills game that honestly I've blocked out of my head, but Vince young just kept having magic one year and, it really sucked because I remember it being a playoff kind of implication game. Remember that one? Yeah, um, that was uh, JP yeah, Lossman's first year as a starter. Yep, 2006. Just brutal, brutal game. I could have gone there. Um, but being that I, you know, I kind of, for my own personal reasons, did not take uh, the Patriots game only because I was at, you know, in some capacity, the Cowboys game. And then the Browns game had a little bit of a person personal mental block not going to take that and i'm going to make sure i take one that needs recognition because i know everyone remembers it out there and it's kind of just it's one of those staple memorable games of the drought era because i mean in 2010 not much is going on with the bills i mean 2010 there is i mean 2009 as you had just discussed with opened up with that monday night game we had to at least it wasn't a great year at all i mean it was (laughs) the season was over before it began essentially but um 
there was still noteworthiness. 2010, I feel like, was a year that literally zero expectations. I honestly don't even remember what I felt going even through the year. I just remember just expecting failure. I just remember expecting nothing and everything that was with that. So I go into week 12 of 2010. The Bills at that point are two and eight. They There's nothing to play for. Nothing matters. And the Steelers are coming to town. And <laughs> at this, I'm actually... I'm actually at Arizona state for this game. Okay. And I remember just going like, Oh, I, I had, I actually did not normally wake up for the one o'clock games um, and stuff like that. But I was like, ah, I want to make sure I go out for this game. I want to go out and I want to watch this game because it's something just in the air. I wanted to do it. So I go out with my buds who don't give a shit about football, by the way. And we just go out to a bar and we're watching this game. And the first half is as awful as you would expect it. Obviously not as a blowout. I remember the opening drive. I remember the Steelers just having long drives. And as I look at the box score, it's exactly how I remember it. 13 plays, 78 yards, touchdown. We just basically three and three and out punt. There were four plays essentially, but we just three and out. Next drive, Steelers 14 plays, 56 yards, get a field goal. I remember being exactly how that drive sounds. Just an absolute grind of a game. Horrible. Just horrible, horrible. So first half's over. I'm just like, why the hell did I even bother? Like, I should have just kept the routine. I was out drinking probably the night before and partying until four in the morning or who God knows what. Remember being miserable. Bill start the second half with finally putting something together. Only to drive all the way down to the Pittsburgh 31. As it says here, I knew it was in the Pittsburgh end. Just wanted to verify. And Lee Evans fumbles. They get the ball back and you're just like, all right, the game's pretty much over. And that's kind of where I'll leave it. Like at that point, the game's pretty much over. Well, all of a sudden they force a punt, go down, get the ball and then bang, get a touchdown. And you're like, okay. I mean, Fred Jackson just like unleashed for a touchdown. That's something, whatever. The game has been suckful at this point. Like it's kind of how I feel opposite now. Like if the bills are doing really good and then all of a sudden a team breaks out like for a 50 yard touchdown, I think nothing of it because you take that away and they still haven't been able to do anything. So now we're in that position where it's like, we have not been able to do anything. I'm not reading into this. Force another punt, go down on a nice long play or a long drive. Sorry. 11 plays. Boom. Field goal. It's a three score game. Now, now I'm intrigued. Literally the next offensive play for the Steelers, they fumble. Rashard Mendenhall fumbles. And how good old Rashard Mendenhall. He won me a lot of money on side bets and things like that. I will always remember Rashard Mendenhall, both for his time as a Steeler and a Cardinal, as bad as the Cardinal time was. I digress. Um, Bills get a field goal off of that because I remember they couldn't get in the end zone. And I I remember kind of being like, they're really going to regret that. They're really going to regret. You just knew, though, that's fitting. The Bills can't win this game. Okay, we tied it. That's really cool. Steelers go down, get a field goal, take the three-point lead, and then we kind of have like, I, I remember we got a big kick return, I want to say, and then there was a penalty uh, and stuff like that that got us on the Pittsburgh end, only to throw an interception deep in the Pittsburgh you know, half. And I was like, well, that's pretty much game over. We're, we're not going to stop the Steelers. They're going to run out the clock. It's over. And this is kind of where my memory starts really kicking in. We do force a punt. We somehow get the ball back with 40 seconds left. Not only do we get the ball with 40 seconds left. 
excuse me, sorry, something was stuck there. But then Fitzpatrick is actually hitting dimes. He he hits. I think it was uh, was it David Nelson? He hits David Nelson. He hits. Uh, I want to say Lee Evans or no, he misses him. Sorry, I'm looking at it now. Misses Lee Evans. Hits David Nelson again. Gets us into a range where we actually can get a field goal. We hit it somehow. We have gotten this thing to overtime. We get the ball and we punt. Steelers get the ball and they punt. And then I believe this is where it all happens. We get the ball back on our own 34. Yeah, I'm just looking at it now because I want to make sure I don't screw any of this up. I know we drive the ball down. We get the ball down to Pittsburgh's. I want to say the moment happens. Yes, it is. Fred Jackson runs up for a first down. We get to their side of the field at the 40-yard line. And then the moment that we all remember happens. Fitzpatrick drops back, throws a beautiful, beautiful ball to Stevie Johnson. And somehow, some way, someone that we still love to this day just could not come down with the ball in the end zone right over his shoulder. And there's the image of him just sitting there with his head down in the end zone in disbelief that he could not come down with this ball. Somehow, after that point, we don't even get a field goal. We punt the ball. And I still, like, I think about this all the time. I don't understand how we punt that ball on Pittsburgh's 39. Our kicker was who? Was it Sweesome at this point? It was Lindell. Oh, was it Lindell at this point? Okay. Just try it. At this point, what else do you have to, you're on their 39. So that's going to be a 56 yard field goal, 57 yard attempt. Lindell could hit that. It's going to be a tough one, but he could hit that. I remember thinking that we punt the ball, just a horrible decision. I mean, obviously if you're at a 39, guess what's going to happen? You're probably not coffin cornering them. You're, you're going to put in the touchback. Yep. Touchback. Well, as the game started and the reason I brought it up, I remember this drive just being brutal. Why? Because it was just like a slow bleed, 13 plays in total, just methodically just going right down the field ever so slowly. They get all the way down to our 22. That's why I was thinking Sweetsome because Sweetsome was the Steelers kicker at the time. Yeah, Yeah, it's just the the name. Yeah. And then they kick the field goal. It's over. The moment, though, of course, is afterwards when all of a sudden Stevie Johnson felt the need to blame God. And this is why it's the blame God game on and you know, why would this happen to me? as he put it, and it just took off. I actually did not expect it to take off. I remember thinking the same thing as everyone else in the world. I did not think it would actually blow up as much as it did. But literally everyone's like, holy crap, Stevie Johnson's blaming God for his drop. (laughs) Like, come on, guy. Like, you got to pull. I mean, you're an NFL receiver. You got to pull that. Stevie Johnson of all receivers, too. You got to pull that down. But the, the moment still sits there, and I remember it being just a highlight of the drought. Because it was almost like there was just a, I, I, I pointed to this way though, and then maybe Stevie was onto something. Those years, as bad as our teams were, you almost were just like, there's a higher being in control here that is ruining our lives. That is Bill's fandom. And it's like, yep. something's going on that it just does not want anything to go our way. The McKelvin fumble, as you put it, like he was one of the best returners in the league at that point and he just fumbles the game away in a key situation i mean the monday night games i brought up 
And then this moment happens. Now, if you think about it in chronicle, we literally just said all these in chronological order, pretty much. You have 2007 against the Cowboys, 2008 against the Browns. You did 2009 Monday night football game. And now it's 2010 in the blame God game. Like at some point, you have to believe there is something else going on and it is not just <laughs> players screwing things up. And that is really when that mindset crept in. And I thought in a weird, weird way, Stevie Johnson hit the nail on the head and it's like, why him? Why in that moment? The game meant nothing. Like, it's not like we were going to the playoffs. As I said, going into it, we we're two and eight. We obviously end up two and nine. Like we're going nowhere. That team was awful. If we could have just won that game against a great Steelers team, that would have felt good. And somehow, some way, we didn't. So the blame God game or the Stevie Johnson drop game against the Steelers in 2010 has to be my third and final pick. It's a great call. And it actually came right after another famous game for Stevie Johnson, the Why So Serious game. Um, what I remember yes. about the the 2010 Bills is when you look at that season – they really screwed up a chance to get Cam Newton. And that off season was rough because they're all year long. You had been hearing about this quarterback, Andrew Luck, who was the best prospect to come out and he was going to come out as a junior and he was going to be the top quarterback in the draft. And like, man, the bills might've picked a really good year to be awful. And then there's this quarterback at Auburn, Cam Newton, who is just, looking like a star, like maybe he's a little raw, but man, you haven't seen an athlete athlete like this at the position. The bills are going to get one of these two guys, as long as they just, you know, they don't win some meaningless games down the stretch and they start off 0 and 8 and then boom, beat the lions. That's okay. It's one win. Then boom, why so serious against the Bengals? And then boom, eyelash away from beating the Steelers. And then they win two more games against the Browns and the dolphins. And after starting off 0 and 8, they finished the season four and four and what should have been actually five and three. If Stevie Johnson, uh, if God doesn't knock the ball out of Stevie Johnson's hands and um, the bills don't get Cam Newton, don't get Von Miller, do get Marcel Darius and another, what was that? 10. So another seven more years of not making the playoffs ensued. This was a great oh, game yeah. to me, to me, this one didn't break my heart as much because like you said, at that point in the season, it was just like the season was lost. When I think of heartbreakers, it's more like every bills drought season always felt like one of those seven and nine years where there was kind of like a late November run where you're like, if they can just win out and seven more teams lose out, they're going to make it. And you start to get that false belief and then they lose a random game to the Falcons in Toronto or something. Um, to me, this one wasn't that, but it was just like, that would have been so cool to beat the Steelers. Like this team has fight. And I know I remember thinking like, yeah, it'd be cool to get Cam Newton and Andrew Luck, but this team has fight. Like they just came back and beat the Bengals. They're, they're going toe to toe with the Steelers. I can live with this and yeah, nothing. And that season started off with a, a loss to the dolphins at home where the bills had, were down by three points with 30 seconds to go and no timeouts. And it was fourth and 10 on their own five yard line. And instead of going for it on fourth and 10, Chan Gailey took a safety because he thought his chances were better of Brandon Marshall, Brandon Marshall dropping a safety punt for the bills to fumble recover it. than of Trent Edwards throwing a 10 yard pass for a first down. That's how the season started. And then it ended obviously with, 
a lot more misery, including that game against Pittsburgh. That's a great call by you, Luca. Yeah. I mean, it, it's just like, as you put it, the uh, overall implications of the game were not there where you would consider it uh, heartbreaking in the traditional sense. But me personally, like I said, I was, I was a, uh, I was a freshman at ASU. I, I, I finally made the effort to wake up and watch this game. And somehow I was able to witness that. And it was just like, <laughs> I, I, I remember just being like, I'm not, I'm never waking up for football on the West coast ever again. I'm never, <laughs> I'm never making an effort to do this. Like, this is a disaster. This is horrible. It was just like, it was, it started awful. You, you somehow line me back up into the game here late in the game and then just deal with that misery. That was that drop. It was just like, why did I even waste my time? It was, yeah, I mean, great, great little nod there to point out. It was right the week after the Why So Serious game. So Stevie's riding an ultimate high. He's feeling good, and then that happens. Just brutal, brutal, brutal time. Yep, there was a lot of brutal times back then, but I think we're both confident in saying that it is looking much, much better these days as our Buffalo Bills are the betting favorite to win the Super Bowl in 2022. We are going to turn the calendar to June here as we look forward to more off-season workouts, some activity with the uh, Bills having training camp coming up. We have possibly some more free agency additions coming up, and we're going to cover it all here on Bills Chat. We will see you next week on Bills Chat, a pro football podcast. Thanks again for listening to this episode of Bills Chat, a pro football podcast. Follow us on Twitter if you're not already, at Bills Chat Pod. And also be sure to subscribe to this channel on whatever platform it is you choose to spend your time listening to us every week. Look forward to talking to you all again next time.